Washington. Your listener-supported NPR news station from American University in HD at 88.5 on your smart speaker and online at wamu.org. I'm Michael King. Have a great night and stay safe. I'll talk with you next time. Good night. Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and our co-producer, Jill Arold Bailey, was kind enough to point out that tonight marks five years since she and I collaborated on our first big broadcast show, succeeding our founder, John Hickman, our beloved Ed Walker, and our good friend, Rob Bamberger. We've been honored and thrilled to be with you every Sunday. And tonight, we're going to play some of our personal favorites. In addition to Gunsmoke and Dragnet, you'll hear Fred Allen, Orson Welles, The Whistler, My Favorite Husband, and not Star Wars, but Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. We'll explain. So relax. Celebrate with us, won't you? Forget about any of last week's troubles, postpone worrying about the week to come, and put your imagination to work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. To start our celebration, we've got not only our, but everybody's favorite, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. We've mentioned before how prominent professional boxing was in American culture up through the days of Muhammad Ali. Along with baseball and horse racing, boxing was one of the big three in American sporting life in the first half of the 20th century, and it was still a big deal on March 19, 1961. That's when this episode, The Ring of Death Matter, aired over CBS as part of the series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Don Pinkley, Johnny, at Surety Mutual Insurance. New Orleans, Louisiana. That's right, still down here in New Orleans. How are you, Don? I'm just fine, Johnny, fine. But as usual, when I call you, I got a small problem. And long as you know something about boxing... Boxing? Yes, sir, don't you remember? Last time you came down here after you wound up the case, you and I took in a boxing match. Yeah. Seems to me I won a fast 20 bucks from you that night on an Italian kid who called himself Touchy Tarantino. That's right. That boy was a fighter with a real future. Not anymore, Johnny. Which is why you covered your losses by selling him a $25,000 policy. What was that crack about his future? I'm afraid he has none, Johnny. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Suicide or murder. What happened to him? Nothing, Johnny. Not yet. But you think something will? Like I said, either suicide or murder. Well, which and why? Fly on down here and I'll tell you. Okay? Okay, Don, I'm on my way. Hello? Hello? 
CBS Radio Network brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Surety Mutual Insurance Company, New Orleans office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Ring of Death matter. Expense account item one, four seventy-five for a cab to Bradley Field. Item two, eighty-seven forty for a flight to New Orleans. It was early evening by the time the plane set down at Moisand International Airport. And item three is 550 for a cab into the Roosevelt Hotel. From there, knowing that Don Pinkley would be long gone from his office, I set out to explore the town. Most interesting city in the United States, it's called. And with good reason. The famous old French Quarter is one of the most beautiful spots that I know. Well, after dark, the deafening din from the nightclubs along Bourbon Street home of the real, original Dixieland jazz. Item four, if I can get away with it, is $15 for, um, well, call it refreshment. Or maybe midnight lunch. After all, I did put away a sandwich at the old absinthe house on the corner of Bourbon and Viendro. And then, at 9.30 the next morning, I barged in on Don Pinkley at his office on St. Charles Avenue. Right in here, Johnny, where we can talk understood. Sure, Don, whatever you say. Sit down, sir. Thanks. Care for a little drink? At this hour of the morning? Most of you northern boys seem to expect it when you get down to this part of the country. (laughs) No, thanks. Okay. I'll get right to the point. Touchy Tarantino. Only his first name is really Tony. Antonio Tarantino. And you've insured him for $25,000. So what goes with him? Johnny, when you were down here before... He was one of our most promising young fighters. He certainly looked it when I saw him. Yes, and he married a nice little girl named Angie. She's his beneficiary. I see. Yes, Tony did very well for himself. Except financially. What do you mean? I mean his manager. A crooked promoter by the name of Raul Martinez. Mm -hmm. So Touchy took all the wallops and Martinez took all the dough. That's right. Then out in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago... Tony fell out of the ring and busted his head. That's too bad. Did Martinez stick around, help him with his hospital bill and so on? He did not. He left him flat. Mm -hmm. But now, Don... And what happens as soon as Tony and his wife are able to work their way back home? I don't know what happens. Martinez has latched onto him again and set up a fight for him. And? He'll be murdered, Johnny. You mean that bang on the head? Of course. The doctor out in L.A. told Angie that for him to step into the ring again would be nothing short of suicide. One hard blow above his left ear and he's dead. But, Don, if all it takes is the word of a doctor to keep him from fighting... Somewhere in Mexico. Mexico. Mm-hmm. And the fight is tomorrow night. Where in Mexico? Well, that's the trouble. I haven't the least idea. But if you can find out... Well, Johnny? I can try... Finding out where Martinez had taken Tony wasn't nearly as hard as I'd expected. 
My pal, Johnny Ortiz, at police headquarters, gave me the name of a stoolie in the Mexican section, whose name was Miguel Andrade. Andrade, for 50 bucks, that's item five, gave me the name of a small town not far across the Texas border in Mexico. And I'm not naming that town, say, for diplomatic reasons. Item six is $5 for a cab to the airport. And then 4305, plane fare to Brownsville, Texas. Item seven is $21 for a taxi to that poor little town in Mexico. I arrived about 9 a.m. The town consisted of a main street mostly full of souvenir shops and lined with tourist cars from the U.S. At one end was a small sports arena, closed. But there were billboards all over the place advertising the fights, including Tony's with Pancho Gutierrez. So I tried the one so-called hotel there along the main street... And in a set of rooms on the second floor, found his wife. Yes. Yes. So I found out the way you did, Mr. Dollar. And I followed them down here. I found out that they were staying here. But what can I do? Angie. So, per favore, please, if you can keep my Antonio from fighting tonight. Where is he, Angie? Is he here? Man, no. This Raul Martinez has him locked up in the dressing room in the... In what do they call the Colosseum, where the fight will be. Okay, then. Because, per carita, he knows that I would stop him. That I would not let my Antonio go into that ring tonight. So, what can I do? What do you mean, what can you do? You know that Tony might be killed if he fights? I know, I know. But since the accident to his head, my Antonio is not the same. He believes anything this Martinez he tells him. Angie. And Martinez, he tells him that he can beat this Pancho... Gutierrez, and, and Antonio believes Now, me. listen, Angie, I have seen Tony fight, and I've seen Pancho Gutierrez fight. I've seen him in Boston, New York, all over the place. And what do you think? Even if Tony were in shape, and I don't see how he can be after what happened to him in Los Angeles, well, I would hate to bet on him. But uh, they tell me that all of these, what you call the odds, are on, on my Antonio. What? Oh, so that's it. That's why Martinez brought him down here where they don't know what happened to Tony. Sure, the odds are on him, but Martinez' money is on Pancho. But uh, you mean that Martinez, he, he bets against his own boy, my, my Antonio? Knowing what he does about him, why else would he let him fight? No. Then he wants him killed. All right, Angie, come on. We're going over to the Coliseum. But I can't. Why not? Because of Jose. Who's Jose? Because that Martinez... He... Because I am not alone here. That is right, Senor Dollar. Mm. No. You stay where you are, Senor. Because if you get up from that chair, I will blow your head off. Now, that's a corny line. Jose, please. So you would keep Tarantino from fighting tonight, eh? I'd keep him from getting killed. And uh, you, Senor? Me? What do you mean, me? If you do not wish to be killed, you will forget Tarantino and you will go back to the estate. Sorry, mister. No. Do not move. Oh, put that thing down. See, I will put it down like this. Jose, you have killed him. Repeat after me, please. What do you want when you need brand? What do you want when you need brand? Reliability. 
reliability. Now, what do you get in Kellogg's All Brand? What do you get in Kellogg's All Brand? Reliability. Right. Hi, this is Dennis James to explain why Kellogg's Way is the reliable way to get the effectiveness you want from brand with just half a cup a day. See, Kellogg's All Brand is the real Battle Creek formula, the one that millions of people depend on. And they depend on it because Kellogg's All Brand contains more vital brand bulk to help you keep regular. It's low in calories, and it's mighty pleasant eating, too. Kellogg's All Brand comes in crisp, toasted shreds that have a wholesome brand muffin taste. I think you'll like it. So be sure you remember, for the effectiveness you want from brand, get reliable Kellogg's All Brand. That's what you get in Kellogg's All Brand. Reliability. Martinez's little pal, Jose, whatever his name was, had suggested there in that hotel room that I mind my own business, go back to the States. And that's exactly where I found myself when I came to. On top of a rubbish heap, somewhere on the outskirts of Brownsville, Texas. Minus my gun, of course. How he smuggled me back across the border, I'll never know. But at this point, I didn't care. Item eight is another 21 bucks for another cab. That little unnamed Mexican town. And this time I went straight to the so-called Coliseum, a little sports arena. Five bucks American got me in through the janitor's entrance into Tarantino's dressing room. And I suddenly realized what a blow on the head had done to this formerly clean, alert, ambitious young fighter. What do you mean you starved the five dollar? What's the matter with you, Tony? Don't you realize that if Pancho Gutierrez hands you one over that left ear, you'll never get up off the canvas alive? Oh, you don't know Martinez. Oh, I don't, huh? No. You think he ain't fixed it up so I don't get hit that way? Kid, are you out of your mind? No. Don't you talk like that. I'm all right. Martinez says I'm all right. Now listen to me, Tony. Martinez doesn't care how you get hit, and he doesn't care what happens to you when you do. Do you think that crook is betting on you tonight? No, I don't. Do you think for one minute that... What was that? So the fire's fixed. So I take a dive in the port. So everything's okay. You throw a fight. Why not? So I'll clean up. Keep that word clean out of it. What do you mean? I mean that bang on the head has done more damage than you think, if you still can. Hey, yeah, now listen, Donald. Somebody suggests you throw a fight a couple of years ago, you would have slugged him. So what? So it's now i got to think of my wife. You're a good boy, then. You're a good fighter. You're a clean fighter. That's why Angie married you, isn't it? You keep her eye on Now listen this. to me, Tony. So what if I can't fight a gin anymore and up in the States? I throw a fight for Martinez like this one. Here in this town where nobody cares. He'd give me enough dough to get back on my feet. Maybe start a business. Something like that. You believe that? Why not? Why didn't he give you an honest share of the purses that you won for him before? Because I was only starting out. Oh, sure. Fine. That old line. Why didn't he help you after you busted your head in L.A.? Well, why didn't he? I don't know. I don't care. He's helping me now. He's helping you get killed. What's the matter with you, Tony? When you got back from L.A., you went to Martinez because you didn't know where else to go, right? So I was broke. And I told him, after the way that he left me there, he had to help me. Had to get you more fights? No, he had to help me is all. 
So I said he would, and now he is. You dumb ox. Hey, don't you talk like that to talk Listen, when you came begging to him, all he saw was that if he didn't get you out of his hair, he'd have you tagging after him the rest of his life. So why not? Down here in a place nobody ever heard of except a lot of gamblers out for a fast buck, why not let you fight? Why not let you kill yourself? Not only make a pile of money on you, but he'd be rid of you once and for all. <laughs> You're a real crazy dollar. He wants me to go out there and get killed? You think he'd fix the fight? You think he'd tell me take a dive? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's it, Tony. Maybe what's it? Do you know for sure that this fight is fixed? Sure, I know. Martinez, he told me. Sure, he told you, because he knew you wouldn't dare to fight if you thought you might be killed. He no doubt fixed things with whoever passes for a doctor in this dump. And then set you up on the promise that you wouldn't be hurt. And you believed him, you sucker. You know what I don't believe, Lala. What? You. Now get out of here. Sure. Sure, Tony, anything you say. Yeah. But have you told Angie that this fight is to be a setup? She don't even know where I am. Oh, she doesn't, then. Anyhow, I said leave her Keep out of here. Keep your this. hands off and me. And listen, you tell Angie, you tell Angie anything, I'll tell you. No need to. Huh? I'm sure that when she sees you in the ring you, tonight... You mean she's down here? Well, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it. But when I bring her to the arena tonight... Oh, no, no, no. No, uh, because if uh, Angie... Look, l listen, she, she knows me the way I fight. And if she sees, I take. If she sees. Yeah. Think it over, Tony. Get out. Get out of here. Sure, and I'll have the police stop this fight. Don't be funny. Martinez, he owns his town. The fights, the cockfights, the gambling, the police, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Now get out. So you came back here, Senor Dollar. Jose. Martinez, he wouldn't like this dollar. And so he should know about it. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. This time I was ready for him. When I ducked and his roundhouse slid over my head, I leaned into his knees and then rose and slammed the edge of my hand across the back of his neck. And again. Uh... For some strange reason, he... Suddenly gave up. He was dead to the world when I hauled him into a cleaning closet at the far end of the corridor and gagged and tied him down with some old rags rolled up lengthwise to make him plenty strong. That accomplished, I started back to Tony's dressing room. But the door of it was ajar. And by edging up close, I could hear someone talking to him. And you believe him, Tony? This Juanito, this Johnny Dollar... Uh, don't be silly, boy. I see. I don't know, Martinez. I don't know. Well, I do. He's up to some trick, he's all. But uh, if he come around here, he walk in here again. Quien sabe? Who knows? You see this? Hey, you... You've got a silence on that gun. See? So nobody knows if I use it on him, eh? You would kill him? Oh, see, Tony... Just like Pancho Guterres will kill you. What? If you do not take that dive tonight. Oh, no. Listen, Martinez. Don't worry, boy. Don't worry. <laughs> In the fourth, you take the dive. That's all. 
I tore on over to the tiny police headquarters and talked to the fat, sullen-looking chief who sat there in his rumpled uniform, sipping at a glass of tequila. But every time I mentioned the name of Martinez, he shrugged as though he didn't understand English and stared blankly out the window. When I tried to get tough with him, he spoke an order to a couple of his men who promptly tossed me out into the dusty street. It looked as though Tony was right. Somehow, Martinez did have this dirty little town under his thumb. I went on over to the hotel again to look for Angie. The suite of rooms was empty. A stupidly grinning clerk at the desk could tell me nothing except that she'd left a while before with Jose. By the time I got through knocking on doors all over town, finding no sign of her, it was time for the fights. I knew there was no chance of getting a Tony in his dressing room again, so I bought myself a ticket and went in. Every seat in that scrubby little stadium was taken. People were crouching in the aisles. But then I saw Angie standing at the rail in back of the last row of seats. Angie! Excuse me, let me through here, please. Excuse me. Angie! Mr. Dole, please tell me. Could you stop me? I don't know, Angie. I don't know. Well, I do, Senor Tom. Martinez. You feel this here against your side? Mr. Martinez, please, please. Quiet, my little girl. And, Senor Tavler, if you try anything, anything at all, I will pull this trigger. Now, shall we watch the fights? And so we stood there, the three of us, watching the final dull preliminary. And then, Tony's fight. And he looked pretty good, despite his lack of training. Physically, that is. Mentally, I wondered. But I didn't wonder about Martinez's gun. It was there against my ribs all the time. Don't worry, Dollar. He cannot last. If he does not drop in the fourth punch of right to the side of his head, <laughs> and it will be all over. In the first round, Tony went out circling slowly in a half crouch, playing it safe, and then backing away to make Pancho lead. Watching him, watching him, doing all he could to keep the left side of his head away. A couple of times, he leaned in and flicked a hard left to Pancho's mouth. Pancho was plenty cagey, too, knowing that Tony would tire long before he would. By the end of the second, Tony was tired. The Mexican boy was too fresh, too fast for him, and Tony's punch lacked the power it used to have. In the third, the lack of training really began to show. It was obvious now that Pancho was aiming, deliberately aiming, for only one place, for a spot over Tony's left ear. In the fourth, Pancho danced easily around him, trying to set him up. He drove a couple of rights, hook fashion, into Hutchie's ribs. Turn him again. Then in a half-rolling clinch along the ropes, Tony spun and slammed to the side of Pancho's head with a looping overhand right. But it left his own body wide open for jabs and almost broke his ribs. And then in a series of clinches, Tony lasted out the fatal round. Beside me, Martinez began to mutter angrily. And in the fifth, Pancho knew that Tony wasn't going to take that dive then or ever. And when he tried for Tony's head, over the left ear, he telegraphed it every time. And Tony was ready for him. But Tony was tiring badly now and hanging on too much. After an awkward feint, he tried a looper to the head that missed by a mile. And Pancho let it breeze on by and then threw a short, hard right to the chin. As Tony sagged against the ropes, the bell saved him. But he was badly hurt. But it was all too obvious that his seconds weren't giving him much help. How he ever got up on his feet for the sixth, I'll never know. But somehow he did. 
And then when Pancho tore into him, again aiming for his head, Tony turned almost as though he were falling. But he came up all the way up from the canvas with everything he had to the right that caught Pancho on the button that lifted him clear off the floor. And as Pancho fell, Tony fumbled his way almost blindly to a neutral corner and managed to stay on his feet only long enough to hear the full count. But the crowd went wild. And then I felt a sudden movement beside me, and I saw that Martinez had raised the gun to lean it against the post so that he couldn't miss, even at that range, and his face was livid. I swung up with my left with everything I had, and the gun, whirling as he struck it against the post, went off in his face. It's all right, Angie. It's all right. Yes, Martinez was dead. And, of course, the police moved in. And when they realized, he was definitely, finally out of the way. I'm sure they all breathed a deep, sincere sigh of relief. And believe it or not, Angie and Tony and I had a formal escort back to the border that was fit for royalty. Expense account total, including all the incidentals I could think of, $389 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a trip to South Jersey and a murder to stop a murder. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Reddick, is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr., musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in our cast were Robert Dryden as Touchy, Joan Loring as Angie, Ralph Camargo as Martinez, Mandel Kramer as Don Pringle, and Danny Acco as Jose. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hanna speaking. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the Ring of Death Matter from the second to last day of winter in 1961 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. I don't think anybody can spend any length of time in old-time radio, this gorgeous art form that flourished for about 40 years, without developing a huge admiration for Orson Welles. Mr. Wells himself, a man who changed the American theater and the world of motion pictures, always maintained that he'd done his best work on the radio. It's what made him a national star, and it showed better than any other medium his wide emotional, intellectual, and technical range, from drama to documentary, from comedy to horror, from romance to variety shows. Among Mr. Wells's innovations was the introduction of an active narrator into radio drama. As generous as he was as a collaborator, Mr. Wells often placed himself at the center of his work as the storyteller, and we're about to hear how effectively he used that device in comedy. It's a piece written by Arthur Stander, who went on to create the pilot for The Andy Griffith Show on TV. It's called 
Wilbur Brown Habitat Brooklyn, and it comes from the December 1st, 1941 installment of the CBS series, The Orson Welles Theater. Ladies and gentlemen, maybe you won't believe what I'm going to tell you, but I ask you to believe it because it's the truth, the absolute truth. This happened to Wilbur Brown. Wilbur was in his early 40s, married and had no children. His wife was a rather attractive woman in a frilly sort of way, and she never looked at Wilbur. She preferred going to the movies and looking at Clark Gable and Tyrone Thaw and Cary Grant. Wilbur worked in a bank near Central Park in Manhattan, a borough of New York City. He was a teller. All day long, he stood in the cage looking out of a little wire grill and taking in and handing out money. Give you an idea how long people had been associating Wilbur with the cage and the little wire grill. Once Wilbur walked into Mr. Johnson's office to see about an overdrawn account. Mr. Johnson was the manager of the bank. Wilbur entered and said... Excuse me, Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson looked up and said... Who are you? Brown. Answered Wilbur. Who? Asked Mr. Johnson. Brown. Repeated Wilbur. Brown, the teller. Mr. Johnson still looked befuddled, so Wilbur took the little spare wire grill he always carried for such emergencies and held it in front of his face. Then Mr. Johnson's face lit up and he said, Oh, yes, Brown. Every weekday at 12 o'clock, Wilbur ate his lunch very quickly so he could spend most of his lunchtime walking around Central Park. He loved Central Park, especially the zoo. One particular day, the day my story begins, Wilbur stopped in front of a cage that bore the sign, Chimpanzee Habitat Africa. Well, Wilbur, the animal, looked like any old big monkey he'd ever seen, but the sign said chimpanzee. Habitat. Africa. And, like most other people, he wasn't going to argue with it. Instead, he simply looked at the chimpanzee behind the bars, and the chimpanzee looked back at Wilbur. Chimpanzee smiled kindly at him and spoke in a voice that was soft with sympathy. Oh, my, it's really a pity that you should have to spend most of your life in a cage. What? Why, how did you know that I spent most of my life in a cage? My good man, that's very simple. I I can see the bars in front of your face. You, you can see the bars in front of... <laughs> oh, that's very funny. <laughs> he can see the bars in front of my face. <laughs> well, what's so funny about that? Really? <laughs> Those bars aren't in front of my face. But they are? No, they're in front of your face. No. Yes, you're the chimpanzee. It's not I who's in a cage, it's you. You, you mean a... I'm the one who's in a cage? Certainly. I'm in a cage just because I'm a chimpanzee. <laughs> I used to feel so sorry for those poor people. I, I always thought it was they who were in a cage, and all along it's been... It, it's been me. Oh, don't take it so hard. It's really not that bad. Oh, don't take it so hard, the man says. Sure, it's all right for you to talk. You're free. You are. You can go where you want. Do what you want but me. I'm trapped. Only already I have a caged feeling. But, but, but how come you didn't discover it before? Didn't you try to go anywhere for a walk or anything? Well, frankly, I'm... Well, I'm... I'm lazy. Well, then why let it make a difference now? But it does. Don't see what you're kicking about. Take me. How much freedom have I got? Eight hours a day, I'm in a cage at the bank. Then I rush home, dinner, I dry the dishes. Then I go to whichever movie my keeper has decided on. Your keeper? That's my wife, Angela. Oh, Mary. Uh, I had a girl once in Africa. It was the, the Congo. 
Now I can never go back. <laughs> You're lucky. Why? I, I was crazy about her. Yes, I was once crazy about Angela, too. No more? Oh, sometimes. Very seldom, though. Now and then, when she does something that reminds me of 20 years ago. No memories. They get you. Yes, but you're lucky. You've got security. Why, look at you, sitting there, basking in the sun, a bunch of bananas and arms reach from you. Nice tree to swing from. No, no, it'll, it'll never be the same. It's, it's not like freedom. Look at you. you. You've just been complaining of your lot and envying mine. Still, you, you never change places with me. I'd never what? Well, change places with me. Gosh, you, you wouldn't want to, would you? Oh, want to what? Change places with me. Well, that's odd. Here we've both been talking about the same thing, and neither one of us has even been considering it. Well, then there's only one thing to do. What? C consider it. All right, I will. Then I will, too. Well, what do you say? No, well, what do you say? I like the idea. Well, I like it, too. You'll be sorry. No, you will. I doubt it. Well, if you'll just contrive to open this cage, we'll, we'll both find out. Well, Wilbur did contrive to open the cage, and after equipping the chimpanzee with the necessary information about his routine at the bank, how to take the subway to Brooklyn, and how to get along with his wife, they parted ways, the chimpanzee embarking upon Wilbur's life of freedom and Wilbur the chimp's life of captivity. Now, many of you people are probably snickering and saying he expects us to believe this stuff. Well, I do expect you to believe it because it's all quite true. After all, when does the chimpanzee go walking nonchalantly down the street, enter a bank, take his place in the teller's cage, and start conducting the day's transactions? Never. Everybody knows it's never. Therefore, which is a person going to believe, his reason or what habit tells him? Certainly no man in his right mind will go home to his family and say, I saw a chimpanzee holding down a bank teller's job at the First National. Not only would the man's family think he was crazy, but the man would think he was crazy too. So, habit won over reason, and the chimpanzee went unnoticed. Now, what about Wilbur? Certainly the sight of a man lying on his back in a cage, scratching his midriff and eating bananas, should be enough to send people screeching for the zoo authorities. But the sign on the cage read, Chimpanzee Habitat Africa. Which shall the people believe, their reason or cold black print? The sign says, chimpanzee. So that thing, eating bananas and scratching himself, must be a chimpanzee. So Wilbur, too, went unnoticed. But wait. Wait, you might say. What about Wilbur's wife? What about Angela? Certainly she suspected something. But again, does a wife expect a chimpanzee to walk in, sit down at dinner, help her with the dishes, and go to the movies with her? Which is Angela to believe, reason or habit? Besides, we must remember that for years... Angela hadn't bothered even looking at Wilbur. She'd grown completely away from him, so nobody probably said about that part of it. Anyway, it wasn't more than a week before the chimpanzee came back to the zoo to see Wilbur. He brought him some nice roasted peanuts. Oh, Mr. Brown. Oh, hello. Hello there. Glad to see you. Well, am I glad to see you. Really? You can't imagine. In fact, I'm, I'm ready to call it quits. Why? Well, what's wrong? Well, for one thing, I... I don't like your wife. So what? Neither do I. Besides, I warned you about her. What a woman. She never looks at me, never notices me. All she does is make me dry the dishes, take her to the movies, give her money for clothes. The rate she's going, I won't even have enough left to pay my income tax. Oh, income tax. My, 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 income tax. <sighs> I think I'll have another banana. 
Another thing. The phone bill came this morning. Yeah? Yes, 875 with two toll calls to Yonkers. And a telegram to my mother-in-law. I mean, your mother-in-law. Uh, pass me one of those roasted peanuts. Oh, I can't do it, Brown. On your salary, with these expenses, I can't possibly keep up my standard of living. Oh, so now you've discovered standard of living. Discovered it? I, I couldn't avoid the darn thing. Yes, that's how it works. Well, let's stop toying around, Brown. I, I want to call it quits. Sorry. You mean you won't? Right. Definitely, absolutely, and finally, I won't. All right. I, I guess that's that. Yes, I guess it is. But you know what's a funny thing? What is? Remember that day you thought those bars were in front of my face instead of yours? Mm -hmm. And how brokenhearted you were to discover it was the... Other way around? Yes. Well, just like you that day, from where I'm sitting, I could swear that you and all those people walking around behind the bars instead of me. <laughs> Only I'm not going to make the mistake you made. Well, what's that? I'm never going to argue the point. That ends the story. Chimpanzee went back to bank and to Angela, paid the phone bill, borrowed from a fellow whom he played pinochle to meet his income tax and struggle to maintain his standard of living. And Wilbur, he swung from a tree branch for occasional exercise, but mostly he just reclined in the sun, scratching his midriff and eating bananas. And if anyone still doubts the truth of the story, I'll tell you what you do. Take your reason out of the mothballs, prop it up in its leaning places, and go to New York. Firmly resolve that this habit of believing isn't going to triumph over reason. Then drop over to the First National Bank near 59th Street and afterwards the cage in the Central Park Zoo, which reads Chimpanzee Habitat Africa. What you will see will not only convince you, it will astound you. <laughs> Arthur Stander wrote that story. Ray Collins played Wilbur, and Glenn Anders was the chimpanzee. That little sketch might have inspired a joke about a circus gorilla we'll hear a little later tonight in a Fred Allen show. The piece was called Wilbur Brown, Habitat Brooklyn, from the Orson Welles Theater, just six days before the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. A not-so-funny thing happened on the way to the studio. You may know that we were planning to feature the 1981 Star Wars radio series on the occasion of its 40th anniversary right here, beginning tonight, to close our first hour. Well, we still hope to do so, but a rights issue reared its head late last week, and while we hope it's resolved quickly, it may not be resolved at all. So, with profound apologies, we're going to offer what we hope is a distinguished substitute tonight, another outer space adventure. It's a radio version of perhaps the greatest set of stories about visitors to another planet, Ray Bradbury's classic, The Martian Chronicles. It's a pretty clever radio adaptation from NBC's Dimension X that draws on quite a few of the stories. I think you'll be struck by two things, especially how prescient Mr. Bradbury was about many of the features and problems of modern life, including global warming, and, of course, the writing, not just from Ray Bradbury, but from Lord Byron, Ben Johnson, and Sarah Teasdale, who authored the line, There Will Come Soft Rains. From August 18, 1950, the same year that The Martian Chronicles was published, here's the radio adaptation from Dimension X. 
Tonight, Dimension X presents The Martian Chronicles, a dramatization of the new novel by one of our most brilliant young science fiction writers, Ray Bradbury. The Martian Chronicles. January in the year 1999. One minute it was Ohio winter with doors closed, the panes blind with frost, icicles fringing every roof, children skiing on snowy slopes. And then a long wave of warmth crossed the small town, a flooding sea of hot air. William McClellan, you come back here. You know you can't go out in winter without a cold. You want to catch your death of cold? But it isn't cold. It's warm outside. It's rocket summer. Rocket summer? You know, like Indian summer. The rocket lay on the launching field, blowing out pink clouds of fire and heat, cracking the icicles, melting the snow, making summer with every breath of its mighty exhausts. It seared the faces of the watching crowd and drove them back. And then they saw the red fire and heard the big sound as the silver rocket shot up toward Mars and left them behind on an ordinary Monday morning on the ordinary planet Earth. in a house of crystal pillars on the planet Mars by the edge of an empty sea. And every morning you could see Ila eating the golden fruits that grew from the crystal walls. Or her husband sitting alone in his room reading from a singing metal book over which he brushed his hand as one might play a harp. Ila and her husband were not old. Once they had liked painting pictures with chemical fire swimming in the canals when the wine trees filled them with green liquors and talking into the dawn together. But no more. Marriage sometimes makes people old and familiar while still young. And Ela was not happy now. This morning, she sat dreaming between the crystal pillars and wished that somehow a miracle might happen. And then suddenly... Oh. Ela, did you call? No. I thought I heard you cry out. Did I? I was almost asleep and had a dream. In the daytime? Hmm. You don't often do that. Strange. How very strange. I dreamed about a man. A tall man. Six feet tall. Oh, how absurd. He'd be a giant, a misshapen giant. I know. And yet, somehow, he looked quite handsome. He was dressed in a strange uniform. And he came down out of the sky in a... Long silver craft. Out of the sky? <laughs> what nonsense. He spoke pleasantly to me in another language. But somehow I understood him with my mind. Telepathy, I suppose. A really ill. And he said, I've come from the third planet in my ship. My name is Nathaniel York. A stupid name. Who ever heard of a name like that? Perhaps they have names like that on Earth. That's ridiculous, Hila. Everyone knows the third planet is incapable of supporting life. There's too much oxygen in their atmosphere. I suppose. But haven't you ever wondered if... Well, wouldn't it be fascinating if there were people there and they traveled through space in some sort of ship? Really, Ela? 
You know I hate this emotional wailing. Well, let's get on with our work. Evening came. The twin white moons of Mars were rising. And the house closed itself in like a giant flower. A wind blew among the pillars, stirring Ela's russet hair, crooning softly in her ear. And it was then that she began singing the song. Drink to me, only thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. Ela, what's that song? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I've never heard it before. Did you compose it? No. Yes. No, I don't know, really. I don't even know what the words are. They're in another language. It was part of a dream I had, I guess. Oh. You know, you haven't been yourself lately. It might do you good if we went away to the Blue Mountains for a week or so. Uh, what? Did you hear what I said? I'm sorry. I was watching the sky. You're certainly interested in the sky tonight. It's very beautiful. Well, what about my suggestion? Shall we leave for the Blue Mountains in the morning? You mean go away now? Oh, no. No? Why not? Why don't you want to go? I don't know. I just don't want to, that's all. Oh, leave the I'm sick of that silly song. It's late. Let us sleep. From the crystal walls poured a soft carpeting of mist to support Ela where she lay down to sleep. But through the night she tossed restlessly until just at dawn the dream recurred. Ela! Ela, wake up. What? Oh, what is it? You've been dreaming again. You talked in your sleep. Did I? Yes. What were you dreaming? Oh, the ship. It came from the sky again. And the tall man stepped out and talked with me. <laughs> Telling me little jokes and laughing. What else happened? And then this, this Captain York... Oh, I can't. It's all so silly. Tell me! He said I was beautiful. And then he kissed me. I thought so. What else? Why, Eel, you're so bad-tempered. It's only a dream. Is it? You know I can read your mind. You can't keep secrets from me. Well, all that happened was this Captain York told me... Well, he told me he'd take me away in his ship, into the sky. Take me back to his planet with him. <laughs> it's quite ridiculous, really. Ridiculous, is it? You should have heard yourself... Pawning on him, talking to him, singing with him all night. In your dream, he landed in Green Valley, didn't he? Please. And he told you he was coming today. Yes. But what's come over you? It was only a dream. You can't be jealous of that. No, no, I suppose not. Forgive me. I'm being childish. Eel, you're sick. You've been working too hard. No, no, I'm all right. But perhaps you're right. Maybe I could use a little relaxation. Yes. I think I'll take the morning off and go hunting. Hunting? Yes, in Green Valley. 
Numbly, she watched him go to a closet and draw forth an evil-looking weapon. And then her husband was gone, walking toward Green Valley. And Ela waited, watching the sky for an unknown thing, trembling with a nameless fear. And then it happened. A whirring, rushing sound. The warmth as of a giant fire passing in the air. The gleam of metal in the sky. He's come. It's true. The dream is true. The rocket vanished over the hill. The sky was empty again. And trembling, Ela waited again, looking toward Green Valley and seeing nothing. Listening for sounds and hearing nothing. Until... A shot sounded, very sharply, the sound of the evil weapon. No. No, no, no. Her body jerked with the sound, and she wanted to scream and never stop screaming. For now she knew the dream could never come true. And there was nothing left but the song, the strange and fine and beautiful song. Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine only with kiss within the cup. <laughs> but still the rockets came. The next ship came down from the stars and the black velocities and the silent gulfs of space and landed by night near a Martian city. The men made their way to the outer rim of the dreaming city and then Jeff Spender went in to reconnoiter while the others watched and waited, waited for something to stir in the haunted city, some gray form to rise, some voice to break the unearthly stillness. Where were the people? Where were the Martians? Nothing stirred to disturb the silence until... Halt! Who goes there? Don't shoot! Hold it, Parker. Let's spend her in this party. They're coming back. Captain Webb! Over here! Well? Captain, we've searched the city. People were living here last week. People? Martians. Where are they now? Dead. Dead? What did they die of? You won't believe it, Captain. Chicken pox. Good Lord, no. Yes. No resistance to an Earth disease, I guess. So the other rocket did get through to Mars. It looks like it, Captain. God only knows what the Martians did to them. But at least we know what they did to the Martians. You mean they're all dead? Yes. This planet is through. Hey! You hear that, guys? We're safe. <laughs> Break out a bottle, Cookie. Let's have a drink to celebrate. Stop it, Parkhill. Put down that bottle. Ah, what's eating you, Spender? The planet's ours now. We got a christener, don't we? <laughs> I christen thee the city of... Uh, I christen... Hey, Parkhill City, huh? Parkhill, I warned you! All right, Spender, that's enough. That'll cost you a $50 fine. Cookie McClure... Take care of Parkhill. Spender, you come with me. Oh. 
All right, Spender. Why did you hit him? I don't know, Captain. I was ashamed, I guess. Ashamed of Sam Parkhill and the noise and the spectacle the whole crew is making. It's been a long trip. It's only natural they'd want to have their fling. Yes, but where's their sense of what's right? Their respect for what's happened here. Captain, a race builds itself for a million years. Refines itself, builds cities like this one. Does everything it can to give itself respect and beauty and... And then... It dies. Of what? Not anything fine or majestic or fitting, but... But a dirty little thing like chicken pox. And Sam Parkhill wants to celebrate. I know, Spender, but you've got to remember you've a different way of seeing things. I'm seeing things all right. I'm seeing what we'll do to Mars. We'll rip it up, rip the skin off, ruin it the way we've ruined our own planet. Captain, look at the city. It may be the last time you'll ever see it this way. Beautiful in the moonlight, isn't it? Yes. There's a poem by Byron that describes it. And how the Martians would feel tonight. If there were any... Any of them left to feel. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night. Though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath and the soul wears out the breast. And the heart must pause to breathe. And love itself must rest. Oh, the night was made for loving and the day returns too soon. Yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. Without a word, the Earthmen stood and looked at the city. The bottle lay shattered at Sam Parkhill's feet. And the sour stench of liquor filled the cool air. The men of Earth had come to Mars. Dimension X will continue in just a moment. It's National Wheaties Week. Yes, the week when everybody tries Wheaties, even an orchestra leader. And here he comes from behind the scenes in radio to help celebrate National Wheaties Week Mr. Von Dexter. Thank you, Frank. Hello, folks. I understand this is National Wheaties Week. I can't get a kick out of that. The only breakfast food in the world with a week of its own. And I'm here for just one thing, to ask you to try Wheaties during National Wheaties Week. There are a lot of us whose voices you've never heard on the Wheaties' big parade of radio programs, you know. Backstage people. Like musicians. Right, Frank, like musicians. We get great pleasure from knowing you like these programs well enough to buy a box of Wheaties tomorrow. Wheaties are good. They're nice to eat. I like them. I think you will. Try them once during National Wheaties Week. Will you do that? Vaughn, I think the folks will. Good. Thank you. Good night. The men of Earth came to Mars. They came because they were afraid or unafraid. Because they were happy or unhappy. Because they felt like pilgrims or did not feel like pilgrims. 
the government posters screamed, There's work for you in the sky. See more. And the men shuffled forward, all kinds of men, all coming for different reasons. The rockets came like drums beating in the night. They came like locusts swarming and settling in blooms of rosy smoke. Mars was a distant shore, and the settlers spread upon it in waves. First the pioneers and builders, then the people of civilization. Some came because they were afraid of a coming war on Earth. Some came because they were afraid of nothing. Some came to escape from the smell of the subways and the cabbage tenements. And some came from houses like the one in Ohio. It was a good house, the house in Ohio. And for six years, the family had lived there contentedly, enjoying music and poetry and the rich, warm things of life. For the house had been built to be lived in in the year 2020. It contained all the latest automatic devices, from talking book recorders to singing clocks. As the family rose and dressed, the beds whirred electronically and made themselves. In the kitchen, the stove sighed and ejected from its warm interior eight eggs, sunny side up, twelve bacon slices, two coffees, and two glasses of milk. Seven, nine, breakfast time. Come and dine. Seven, nine. Beside the breakfast table, the facsimile machine clacked and deposited the morning paper on the table. The headlines today spoke ominously of the danger of a coming war. And the man frowned as he read the news. Today is August 4th, 2026. Insurance, gas, and at and heat bills are due. And today, remember, the family has planned a picnic. Gee, Dad, are we really going? Sure, Timmy, why not? It's raining out. It's not raining where we're going, son. Now run upstairs, pack your fishing tackle. We're going on our picnic, all right. Okay, Dad. Bill, are you sure we ought to go? Yes. Have you seen the headlines this morning? Looks bad, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The rocket's ready. All we have to do is pack and take off. I know, but... Well, flying to Mars, it seems so crazy. Well, all right, then we'll go. Should we tell the children why we're going? No, not yet. Let them enjoy the picnic. <coughs> The house went on with its appointed tasks. 9.15, time to clean. 9.15, time to clean. Out of the molding darted hundreds of tiny mechanical mice, all rubber and metal. They sucked up the dust and dirt in the house and popped back into their burrows. In the walls, relays clicked. Memory tapes glided under electric eyes. Recorded voices moved under steel needles. Evening came. In the living room, the hearth fire bloomed out of nothing, and the phonograph spoke from beside the fireplace. Mrs. McClellan, what poem would you like to hear this evening? Mr. McClellan, since you express no preference, I shall select at random from among your favorites. Sarah Teasdale, there will come soft rains. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground. And swallows circling with their shimmering sound. 
and frogs in the pool singing at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire, and not one will know of war. Not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. The phonograph finished the poem, but there was no one there to hear. For the family had gone to Mars. On the Martian desert beside the highway, there rose a blare of red and yellow neon lights that spelled the death of Jeff Spender's dream. Sam's hot dog stand is what the sign read. And Sam, of course, was the same Sam Parkhill who had fought with Spender years before. 10,000 rockets were reported leaving soon for Mars with 100,000 hungry customers. And Sam wanted to be ready for them. Hey, look up there, Emma. Hmm? See that green star up there? That's Earth. Ah, good old wonderful Earth. <laughs> Makes you feel almost reverent, don't it? Yeah. Sam, you're hungry and you're starved. Uh, something, something. That's a poem I learned in school. <laughs> Come on, Earth, send me your rockets. Here's Sam Parker with the only hot dog stand on Mars. Sam, what if the rockets don't come? What if there's a war on Earth? Ah, don't worry, they're coming all right. Ain't nothing gonna happen to spoil my plans, baby. I figured it all out. Sam! Hey, Sam, look up there! Earth! Oh, what? Oh, no. It's catching fire. It's burning. Oh, no, that can't be Earth. Elmer, they can't do this to me. I got all our money invested in this place. <laughs> Go ahead, Sam. Switch on more lights. Turn up the music. Get the hot dogs on the fire. There'll be another batch of customers coming along in about a hundred million years. Oh, no, it couldn't be. What a swell spot for a hot dog stand. Let you in on a little secret, Sam. This looks like it's going to be an off-season. Team radio crackled with the news. By morning, the shelves of the luggage store were empty, and the rockets were blasting off, headed back to Earth. In a few days, everyone was gone, and the planet of Mars once more lay deserted and silent. And then, after all the rest had gone, one last rocket landed on Mars. A small, family-sized rocket come all the way from Earth. It seemed a long way to go for a picnic, but Dad had suggested a fishing trip, and Mother thought the whole family would enjoy a vacation. So here they were, floating down a Martian canal, with Timothy sitting in the back of the boat with Dad and Mother up front holding Alice the baby and the deserted Martian towns drifting slowly by. Dad. What is it, Timmy? When do we see the Martians? You promised we would. Soon, Tim, soon. Oh, but William, the last Martians died out years ago. 
They're a dead race now. Not quite. Don't worry, son. I'll show you some real live Martians later on. Gee, this is swell. I wish we didn't ever have to go home. How long can we stay? A million years. A million years? Yes. It's time we told you, son, we're not going home. This is where we'll live from now on. But what about the rocket? What about Ohio? There's nothing there now but ruins. The last Earth radio just went off the air. That means the war is over and Earth is finished. We're going to blow up our rocket and start all over. See if we can't build a better world up here. You mean Mars is going to be our home? Yes. I hope you don't mind too much. No, sir. But what about the Martians? When do we get to see them? There they are, son. Look down at the water. I don't see anything there. Beside the boat. Look at the reflections in the water. But but that's us down there. Just you and me and Mom and the baby. Yes, son. You see, we're the Martians now. For a long, silent moment, Timmy stared down at the reflections of the family in the waters. And the Martians stared back up at him. Then he lifted his eyes to the deep ocean sky, trying once more to see Earth and the house he had always called home. But Earth was too far away, and the house was now only a heap of radioactive rubble. Only one wall remained standing, and within the wall a voice spoke again and again and again. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone, 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 that we were gone. have just heard The Martian Chronicles, a dramatization of highlights from the new novel by Ray Bradbury. Your narrator was Norman Rose, and featured in the cast were Inga Adams, Roger DeCoven, and Donald Buca. Music by Albert Berman, engineer Bill Chambers. Dimension X is produced by Van Woodward and directed by Jack Cuny. In a moment, we'll tell you about next week's show. And now, here is your Wheaties man, Frank Martin. Go out and get the Wheaties. It's National Wheaties Week. Yep, this is the week everybody's trying Wheaties. See yourself how Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. A better breakfast beginning with Wheaties can help make a wonderful difference because there's a whole kernel of wheat in every Wheaties flake. So eat happy, work happy. Wheaties, breakfast of champions. Get yours. Get yours. It's National Wheaties Week. Next week, the strange and chilling story of The Parade. The parade that suddenly turned into a funeral procession for the world of tomorrow. The world of... Dimension X. NBC's Dimension X 
and Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles from 1950 on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. When you think of the zillions of fatal diseases for which there were no treatments 150 years ago, alcoholism might not be the first one that springs to mind. But it was an incurable illness back then, and it's at the center of a story called The Bottle Man. Tonight's episode from New Year's Day, 1955, CBS and the series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Time's that stage supposed to be here, Chester? Oh, sometimes this afternoon, Doc. They ain't quite sure. You mean they're not sure it'll come at all? Now, that ain't what I said. I said they ain't sure when. Oh. Well, I've heard of stages that don't come at all. Ah, uh, gracious, you ain't very cheery today, Doc. What's the matter, lose a couple of cash patients last night? No, I didn't lose any patients last night. I lost $50 at Pharaoh. Ah, well. What's $50 to a rich man like you? Oh, yes. Which, if you and everybody else paid your bills once in a while, I'd be a rich man. Hey, there she comes, Doc. Oh. Golly, I hope Mr. Dillon's on it. You mean you're waiting here and you don't even know he's coming? Uh, He'll be there. And with big Jim Kelly, too. Kelly? Who's that? You sure are ignorant, Doc. Ignorant of what? Thieves and murderers and scallywags? Big Jim Kelly is wanted for burning down a hotel in Wichita. Yeah, arson. Arson? No, Doc. I said he's wanted for burning down a hotel. Never mind, never mind. But there he is. There he is. He's coming. He's coming. (laughs) Hello, Matt. Hey, he's all alone. Uh, maybe he shot him to save the price of the stage fare, Chester. Oh, Doc, <laughs> Mr. Dillon wouldn't do that. Hello, oh, Doc. <laughs> Chester. How are you, Matt? Hey, where's Big Jim Kelly, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. You didn't catch him? Well, I got close enough to put salt on his tail, but he got away. Well, how in the world did that happen? Well, he, uh, outsmarted me, Chester. Mm. <laughs> well, what's new in Dodge, anyway? Well... Doc lost $50 at Pharaoh last night. Oh, that's not new, Chester. Besides, it's perfectly legal. Oh, uh, you mean has there been any trouble, huh? Uh, no, sir. It's been real quiet, Mr. Dillon. 
except last night when Cassidy got beat up. Cassidy? Uh, who'd beat him up? I hadn't heard of that, sister. Why, Cassidy's the mildest-mannered man I ever saw. Even in his cups. And he's been in his cups for ten solid years now that I know of. What happened, Chester? Oh, that gambler, Bill Clell. Oh, he come here since you left, Mr. Doan. He he brought a girl with him named Flora. What about Clell and Cassidy? Well, nobody's seen it, but Clell admits beating him up. Well, why? He says Cassidy walked up to him, tried to club him with a bottle. Oh, I don't believe that. Cassidy wouldn't attack a wood fence. Is he hurt much, Chester? He don't look very good, but he'll be all right, Mr. Jones. Say, man, I don't believe this Clell. There's something wrong with his story. Well, I'll go by there tonight and have a talk with him, Doc. But right now, let's go get something to eat, huh? Do you see Clell anywhere, Chester? No, sir, I don't. I guess he ain't come in yet tonight, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Look, uh, you go get your beer. I'm going to go over and say hello to Kitty over there. Okay, sir. But you come tell me when he does come in, huh? Yes, sir, I will. Okay. Well, evening, Kitty. Hello, Matt. I hear you came back empty-handed. Oh, how did you know that? Everybody knows it. You know, and all the time I was thinking that nobody even knew I'd gone after a man. That's hard to keep secrets and dodge, Matt. I've tried it myself. Yeah. Well, there's one I'd like to uncover, Kitty. What was this man Clell doing beating up Cassidy last night? Well, I heard it was Cassidy went after him. Oh? Took a bottle to him, they say. Who says? You're right. Nobody saw it. The way Clell told it, he was just as surprised as anybody. I have to admit, I kind of believe him, Matt. Oh, now, Kitty, you know Cassidy wouldn't attack anybody. But don't get me wrong. I'm not standing up for Clell. In fact, I don't even like him. Oh, what's wrong with him? He's no good. I can tell by the way he treats Flora. She's a real unhappy girl, Matt. Well, that's no business of mine. But I don't like the idea of a poor, harmless drunk like Cassidy taking it from him. Hey, there's Flora now. You want to meet her? Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Flora! Flora! Pretty little thing, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Hello, Kitty. Did you want me? You got a minute, honey? I want you to meet Marshal Dillon. Oh! Are you the Marshal? I'm pleased to know you, Flora. Uh, want you to sit down? Thanks. But I can't stay long. Mr. Clell will be in directly. Uh-huh. You, uh, work for Clell, Flora? My job's to steer people over to his faro table and then try to keep them there. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, how long have you known Clell? All my life, I guess. What? Oh, he sort of adopted me when I was five. When my mother died. I'm only 18 now, Marshal. Well, that's mighty young. You uh, look a little older than that. I wish I was 10 years older. Oh, why? Then maybe I could get away from him somehow. Oh, please, d don't tell him that. No, no, no. Of course, of course I won't. He 
married me last year. Oh? Oh, there he is now. He just came in. I, I, I'd better go. The tall man, Matt. The black derby. Yeah, I see him. <laughs> I thought he'd be older. He only looks about 35. I'll be done. There's Cassidy, too. Looks like he's following him. Yeah, he is. And he's got a gun in his hand. Cassidy's going to shoot him, Matt. Even hold that gun steady with both hands, Cassidy. I'm going to kill you, Cleo. Put that gun away, Cassidy. I'll handle him. <laughs> That's just about enough for you, Cassidy. Gonna break every bone in your body. All right, hold it, Cleo. Stop kicking him. Mister, stay out of this. You kick him once more and you'll wake up in jail. Jail? Why, who are you? I'm the marshal here. Well, then why don't you arrest Cassidy? Didn't you see him try to shoot me? I saw him. Now, what's the trouble between you two? Look, Marshal, I give you my word, I never saw this drunken bum before in my life. Took a bottle to me last night, this time he's got a gun. There must be something behind this, Clow. Cassidy's one of the most peaceful men in Dodge. Well, I swear, I never saw him before. I'll tell you one thing, Marshal. Next time I see him, I'm going to kill him. Chester. Yes, sir. Cassidy's still out. Get him over to Doc's, will you? I'll come by there later. Yes, sir, I'll do it, Mr. Clow. If Cassidy tries to kill you, it's your right to protect yourself. But don't do it with your feet. Cassidy's friends might not like it. And I'm one of them. feeling, Cassidy? I'm okay, Marshal. Oh, you're so full of booze, you don't know how you feel, Cassidy. I told you, you've got two broken ribs. That don't matter. I've had worse. Cassidy, what are you after Clow for? Why did you try to shoot him tonight? Thirteen years of hard drinking is lovely to think about. It's bad on the aim, Marshal. I had to hold that gun in both hands. He hit me before I get it off. Why were you trying to shoot him? I don't like his face. Doc, will you do something for me? Sure, sure, yes, Cassidy. What is it? Make me sober. <clears throat> what? I, I mean real sober. Oh, I ain't going to quit forever, but I want to get sober for a spell. Well, I'm sorry, Cassidy. Medicine has no idea how to treat a man who drinks like you. No idea at all. There's nothing you can do? Nothing. If you want to get sober, you'll have to do it yourself. How? Stop drinking. Okay. I'll do it. If Marshall will help me. May help you? Lock me up in jail, Marshall, and don't let me out for, for about a week. I, I can't drink that way. You'll do it, won't you? Well, ordinarily, I'd do anything I could to help you, Cassidy, but uh, 
No, not this time. Why not? Because you want to get sober so you can kill a man. Then I'll do it without your help. Oh, don't worry, Matt. He'll never stay sober long enough to do any harm. I never saw a man like him stop drinking yet. You never saw a man had a reason like I have, Doc. What is your reason, Cassidy? I'll tell you later, Marshal. When you come to hang me. Morning, Chester. Ah, where's the mail? Well, it's in, but they ain't got it sorted out yet. I'll go back and get it later. Okay. You expecting something important? No, nothing special, Chester, but uh, you never know. My. Sometimes I think we'd be better off if there wasn't no mail, no telegraphs, no trains, no stages, no nothing like that. Well, I wish we had more. And maybe we could find out what happened to Cassidy. He's been missing a whole week now. Oh, for heaven's sake, Mr. Dillon, I plumb forgot. That's the first thing I meant to tell you. Well, how, how could I forget that? I swear I must be getting what old. It seems you... like every time I start... Chester, to... what, what did you forget? Uh, about Cassidy. I seen him in the street just now. You did? Well, where is he? I want to talk to him. He was leaning on that building right next door. Drunk? No, sir, he didn't look it. He looked plumb sober. I'll go see if he's still there, will you? Yes, sir. Yeah. There he is. Cassidy! Shh. Hey, Cassidy! Come here a minute. He's coming, Mr. Dillon. Uh, come on in, Cassidy. Marshal wants to say hello. I ain't got much time, Chester. Well, you got a minute, ain't you? Close the door, Chester. What do you want, Marshal? Ah, you had everybody worried, Cassidy. Where, uh... Where you been the past week, huh? I've been out on the prairie, Marshal. Ain't no whiskey out there. Oh, I see. Well, you look fine. I ain't had a drop since I left Doc that night. How are your ribs? Oh, I breathe hard, but that don't bother me. Mm-hmm. I, uh, see that you got a gun in your belt. I have. I can shoot it with one hand now. Still after Clell, huh? You can hang me later, Marshal. It don't matter. But right now, you can't do nothing but talk. Why don't you tell me what this is all about, Cassidy? We're friends, aren't we? You was always a friend to me, Marshal. And I don't like to cause you no trouble, but I can't help it this time. It's just gotta be. Well, okay, Cassidy. You don't want me to help you, but uh, I'm gonna do it anyway. You can't help me. Yes, I can. Now, give me your gun. No. No, Marshal. No. No, you got no right. Now, give don't. Give me the gun. There. Buy me another one. Chester. Yes, sir. Lock him up. Lock me up? No. You can't do that. It ain't legal. I ain't done nothing. To stop you from killing a man's plenty legal the way I look at it, Cassidy. All right. Put him in his cage, Chester. Come on, Cassidy. And don't you try nothing. No, wait. No, you can't lock me up. Clever might get away. You want me to carry you? Uh, all right. Fine, I'll tell you, Marshal. I'll tell you. Leave him be, Chester. Well, go ahead, Cassidy. Tell me. Who is Clow? Thirteen years ago, Marshal, down in New Orleans, Clow ran off with my wife. 
He did. And then how come he claims that he doesn't know you? He don't know me. I changed my name, and I only seen him once before. My wife told me she was leaving, and I watched him get on the riverboat. Clell, my wife, my little girl. Your little girl? Flora was only five then. What? You mean Flora's your daughter? She don't remember me. I don't want her ever to know that, uh, now the way I am. Promise you won't tell her. No, no, of course I won't. But Clell's married to Flora now. Uh, what happened to your wife? Yeah, they got married, but later I heard she ran off. She had to get away from him. I think she's dead, Marshal. I think she killed herself. Look, Cassidy, shooting Clell isn't going to help anything now. I ain't going to kill him because of me, Marshal. I'm doing it for Flora. Yeah, I can tell. She wants to get away from him, too. Yeah, I know she does. I'm going to do it, Marshal. I don't mind hanging. I'm going to help Flora. Clell's done a lot to you, Cassidy, but there's nothing in the world I know of that justifies murder. I don't hold with killing people either, Marshal, but I'm going to do it. Cassidy, listen to me. If I get Flora away from Clell, would you be satisfied? How are you going to do that? Will you leave him alone if I do? I told you it's for Flora I'm thinking about. The other thing, oh, that's, that's too long past. I buried that in a thousand whiskey bottles, Marshal. Okay, I'll see what I can do. Uh, do you have any money, Cassidy? If I didn't work down then, I couldn't drink. How much have you got? No, about $50. All right, give it to me. What? I said give it to me. Oh. Well, here it is, Marshal. That's all I got. It's enough. Now, look, I want you to lay low, Cassidy. Stay out of sight for a while. Will you do that? I'll do it. But I'll be watching. This better not take too long, Marshal. Chester. Yes, sir. Go find Kitty, will you? Tell her to get Flora over to her room and be sure that Clell doesn't know where she is. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Tell Kitty I'll meet him there in about an hour. Oh, and you better hang around outside somewhere, huh? In case Clell gets interested and shows up. something wrong, Marshal? Uh, yes, I think so. I told you, Kitty. I knew there was... Now, Flora, don't get upset. Whatever it is, I'm sure the Marshal isn't after you. Give him a chance to explain. Is it about Mr. Clell, Marshal? It's about you, Flora. But I haven't done anything. No, you haven't done anything, Flora, but I'm going to help you do something. I don't understand. Tell me, if you were alone, free from Clell, where would you go? Oh, I tried to run away before, but he caught me. He beat me something terrible. Well, he won't catch you this time, Flora. Now, where do you want to go? Can you find a job in St. Louis? I'd like to go to New Orleans. 
Mr. Clell says I was born there. I'm sure I could find something to do there. I always wanted to go. Okay, here's a hundred dollars, Flora. Now, that'll get you to New Orleans and keep you till you find work. A hundred dollars? Oh, Marshal, I can't take that. Yes, you can. Now, go on, take it. Why are you giving it to me? Well, you're young. You've still got a life ahead of you. That's reason enough. It's no use, Marshal. Mr. Clell had never let me go. Where is Clell now? At the Long Branch Gambling. He'll be expecting me there soon. All right, then you'll have to hurry. There's a train out at 1 o'clock. That'll only give you about a half hour. But I can't go like this. What about my things? Go get what you need. Kitty will help you. Sure, I will. Come on, Flora. But if Mr. Clell finds I'll me... I'll be at the depot. If Clell does find you, it won't do him any good. I'll see that you get on that train alone, Flora. She better hurry, Mr. Dillon. Stand up, he's about to leave. Kitty will see that she gets here, Chester. Don't worry. Yes, sir. Hey, I thought you told Cassidy to lay low. I did. What? Now what's he up to? Guess he wants to talk to you. What are you doing here, Cassidy? I know what you're doing, Marshal. I figured it all out. Especially when I seen Flora and Kitty going back to her room. They're on the way down here now. I thought you didn't want Flora to know about you. I don't, Marshal. I'm going to stand over there by the building. I only want to see her leave. It'll be the last time. There they come. You better get going. I'm going. Oh, that poor fellow. Come on, Marshal. Take Flora's bag, will you, Chester, and throw it on the train for her? Sure. Give me your bag, Flora. I'll take care of it for you. Thanks, Chester. I'll go find your seat. I would never make it, Master. Oh, you barely did. Well, Flora, we'll uh, say goodbye here. You better follow Chester. Goodbye, Marshal. I don't know why you're doing this, but... Well... I just can't seem to say anything. You don't have to. Good luck. Goodbye, honey. I'm awful happy for you. You'll make out fine. I know you will. I kind of hate to leave you, Kitty. You get going. Train's about to leave. Go on now. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. A good girl, Matt. Yeah, she is. I'm kind of wondering myself why you're doing this. Well, I'll tell you, Kitty. They're about to leave. How's she'll make it. What about Chester? He's still in the car there. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's always wanted to go to St. Louis. And he... Matt, look. Huh? It's Clow. He's after her. Yeah, you stay here, Kitty. Yeah, hurry, Matt. Flora! You all right, Flora? He's dead, Marshal. Get on the train, Flora. But I... Come on, hurry. Go on, move. He shot him, Mr. Dillon. I seen him through the train window. Yeah, I saw him, Chester. Now, here he comes now. Watch him. Yes, sir. I killed him. I killed him, Marshal. Here's my gun. Take it. I should have locked this gun up. 
You went back to the office for it, didn't you? I thought something would go wrong. And it almost did, too. I'd have stopped him, Cassidy. You wouldn't have killed him, Marshal. He can't ever follow her now. You're under arrest, Cassidy. You can hang me. I don't care. Only one thing, Marshal. Yeah, I know. Chester, I'll lock him up. You go buy him a bottle, will you? He's been sober long enough. No, no, Marshal. That's what I was going to say. I... I kind of like it this way. I ain't feeling sorry for myself no more. I'm through drinking the rest of my life. However long that's going to be. Cassidy. Yeah? Nothing. All right, come on. Walk ahead of me. Gunsmoke, produced and transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Eleanor Tannen, and Ralph Moody. Harley Bear as Chester, Howard McNair as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This is the CBS Radio Network. I wonder if it was a deliberate choice to air that Gunsmoke episode about the perils of drink, The Bottle Man, on January 1st. In 1955. In any case, you heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. And Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Check out our website at thebigbroadcast.org. And please visit our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. The series Dragnet can introduce us to some pretty deficient people and some rather gruesome human situations. That's certainly the case in tonight's episode. It's called The Big Child, and it comes from April 26, 1955, NBC, AFRTS, and Dragnet. Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a juvenile detail. You get a call from Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. A two-year-old child has been brought in. Her condition is critical. There's evidence of foul play. Your job? Check it out. 
It was Sunday, August 14th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of juvenile detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Powers. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from detention cells, and it was 7.28 p.m. when I got to the second floor of Georgia Street Juvenile. Squad room. Hi, how'd it go? Nothing. Those kids won't cop to a thing. Hmm. What about the weapons? Well, they admit they had them, and that's all. Nothing about what they were going to do with them? No. I don't know, Joe. Today, kids got a lot more than we ever had. TV, cars, a lot of things. Yeah. Still seems like they aren't happy unless they're figuring out how to beat somebody's brains out. Well, it doesn't go for all of them. Well, enough to give us a headache. Yeah. I take those kids upstairs. If they spent the same time doing something constructive that they do making the zip guns and saps, they'd have something worthwhile, something worth remembering. Now, maybe it'll work out the same way. What do you mean? They won't forget this. Juvenile Friday. Yeah, Doc. Why don't you come in? Anybody with her? Give me that again, will you? Yeah, I got it. Okay. We'll check it. That's right. We'll get back to you later. Thanks, Doc. Bye. It was Dr. Sebastian. Yeah? This brought a little girl into emergency. Had convulsions. How's she doing? Dead on arrival. Frank and I notified Homicide Division, then we left the office and drove out to the address I'd gotten on the phone. 1784 Malabar Street was a small wooden house set on the back of the lot. A dead oak tree in the front yard was overgrown with ivy. Several broken and rusted children's toys were half hidden in the weeds near the front porch. We rang the front doorbell. Somebody ought to be home. The lights are on. Let's try it again. Hmm. Yeah, somebody's coming. Uh-huh. Yes? Ms. Manson. That's right. What do you want? Police officers, we'd like to talk to you. We have to go through it all again. Don't you think I feel bad enough about it? We're sorry to bother you, ma'am, but there's some questions we have to ask you. Oh, all right, come on in. You might as well sit down. Thank you. Thank you. This is Frank Smith, and my name's Friday. How do you do, Miss Manson? Hello. You're the child's aunt, is that right? Yeah. Her mother's my sister. And where is her mother? I don't know. I've been trying to get in touch with her. Left messages all over town, but I guess she ain't got any of them. The child stay with you, does she? Yeah. Been here since she was six months old. Feel like she was my own. Mm-hmm. I've got three kids myself, all boys. Always wanted a girl. When Joan said I could have Melissa, it made me feel real good. Like a daughter of my own, real good. Mm-hmm. No, it didn't make any difference to Joan. None at all. Wasn't anything that mattered much to her. I always thought Melissa was something that shouldn't have happened. In the way, that's what she said. Yes, ma'am. In the way. Mm-hmm. What happened this evening? What do you mean? Well, you're the one who called the hospital, aren't you? Yeah. As soon as I knew there was something wrong, called him. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened? Well, this is Sunday. Yeah. Every Sunday morning, Joan comes by and picks up Melissa, takes her for the day. Mm-hmm. Just like always, she was here this morning. Yes, ma'am. Gonna be a big day. She told the baby they were going up to Griffith Park to the zoo, see the animals. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, we all sat around and ate. My kids and baby and Joan and the kids went to get dressed. Yeah. <laughs> After she was dressed, they left. Joan and Melissa going to the zoo on the ride. Real big day, real big. Mm-hmm. About six, they came back. That's this evening? Yeah, six o'clock. The baby, the baby didn't look real good, kind of hot and flushed. Yeah. I asked Joan if she'd given her a lot of junk. She said no, nothing that had hurt her. That's what she said. Mm-hmm. Just came in the house and then she left. Said she had an appointment, that she couldn't be late. Just dumped the baby inside the house and walked out. I see. I gave her a bath. Thought it might make her feel better. She was running a little fever. 
warm bath supposed to bring down the temperature. Yes, ma'am. Didn't. Didn't do any good at all. I asked her if she was hungry, and she said she was, so I gave her some dinner. Had no more than taken one bite, and she had the first sip. Mm-hmm. Sitting right there at the table, and she had it. I didn't know what to do. Never had nothing happen like that before. I didn't know what to give her. Did you call a doctor? Yeah. We don't have a telephone, so I went down to the corner. There's a booth at the gas station. Yeah. Didn't want to leave the baby alone, but there wasn't any other way. Nothing else I could do. All right. Go ahead, Doctor wasn't at home. I left work for him to come right over, and then I came back. Then no sooner walk into the house, and she had another fit. Scared me to death. Poor little thing. <laughs> I could see she was in pain, terrible pain, and there wasn't anything I could do for her. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't wait anymore. I went back and called the emergency hospital, asked them to send an ambulance. Told them it was important and to send somebody right away. A couple of minutes after that, the men got here and took her away. Poor little thing. Yes, ma'am. She looked at me, like asking me to stop the pain. Begging me, almost tore my heart right out of my chest to see her. So little. Almost killed me. Yes. She was dead when they got her there. Didn't even live long enough for them to try and save her. Not even that long. Yes, ma'am, we know. Just a baby. Two years old and she's dead. Just a tiny little baby. Oh, that hardly seems fair. A lot of people could die and it wouldn't make any difference, but not her. She was beautiful. Just beautiful, like my daughter, like my own. You sure there isn't something we can get for you, Miss Manson? No, nothing. Isn't anything that will help now? Nothing at all. Uh, ma'am, has there been any history of this type of attack in your family? You mean fit? Epilepsy. Anything of that nature? No, never been anything like that. Well, now, did the child tell you that she felt sick? Mm-mm. We didn't have no idea there was something wrong until it was too late. Did she complain of stomach cramps, do you remember? Mm-hmm. No, she didn't. What did you have for dinner? Ground meat, potatoes, the green beans. Couldn't have been that made her sick. We all ate the same thing. The kids and me, none of us had any trouble. Mm. Is your sister separated from her husband? Yeah, they hadn't been together for over a year. Been that long anyway, I suppose. He's supposed to contribute support, but he doesn't. Not a dime. I see. Did she provide support for the little girl? She was the baby's mother, but that's as far as it went. Came to count from a listen that landed in my lap. Remember when she had Rosiola? Joe didn't even come over and see her. Just didn't care. Mailed a little doll for the baby. Guess that was supposed to make up for her mother not being there. Can you tell us where we can contact your sister? Sure. Place over on Hewitt Street. Got an apartment there. You have the address? Yeah. Won't do much good to go over there, though. Why is that? Well, she probably ain't home. Chances are she's out someplace running around having a good time. I see. Don't even know that baby's dead. Hasn't got the slightest idea. I will go and see her. I hope you won't mind waiting for her to show up. You're going to have to. Probably wait a long time. Yes, ma'am. She don't care about the baby. Never did. Told me a couple of times. Just a rock around her neck talked about how hard it was for her to get a husband with a kid or all the time how the baby was making it hard for her. Mm-hmm. All she ever thought about herself. Didn't want anything to interfere with that. Just herself. She won't care about the baby. She won't care at all. Probably won't even talk to you. I think she will. Why should she? No reason for her to even see you. Yes, there is. What? We're trying to find out why the child died. Oh, she just got sick, that's all. There's anything more to it. Melissa just got sick. You seem pretty sure about it. Of course I am. Couldn't be anything else. You think it was anything else? You think there was something wrong? We don't know yet. Well, then talk to Joan. Ask her. Anything wrong with Melissa that happened today, she ought to be able to tell you. Talk to her. Yes, ma'am. That's what we'll do. Hope it does you some good. Wouldn't surprise me a bit if she knows what had happened. What's that? She's probably got an idea. I I wouldn't want her to know I told you this. 
What do you mean? If there's something wrong with the way Melissa died, if there is... Yes, ma'am. It wouldn't surprise me if Joan killed her. Frank and I left the house and drove over to the apartment on Hewitt Street. The name on the mailbox read Joan Guyman. We rang the bell, but there was no answer. We talked to the landlady, a Mrs. Enid Finden. She told us that the Guyman woman had left the place about 7.15 in the company of a man and she hadn't returned. We asked her what she could tell us about Miss Guyman. Kind of hard to say right off. She's funny, you know how I mean? No, ma'am. Well, there's a lot of people who don't like her, lots of them. They think she's kind of wild the way she runs around, partying up. You'll hear a lot of talk about her. Gotta kind of make up your own mind about it. Mm-hmm. You any idea where we can find her? No, could be in half a dozen places. Scott's on a run. She's liable not to slow down for a couple days. You know the man she's with? Mm, sorry. I can't help you there. I've seen him before, but not many times. I don't think Joan goes out with him much. Mm-hmm. Something wrong? Ma'am. Something happened to Joan? No, ma'am. Must be some reason you're nosing around. Anything you want to tell me? It might be a little better if we talk to Ms. Guyman. <laughs> That's you want it. I ain't going to pry into something don't concern me. Yes, ma'am. Have you ever met Mrs. Guyman's little girl? You mean Melissa? Yes, ma'am. Sure. Two of them been here several times. Sundays, you know, Joan has a little girl. How do they seem to get along? What? Ms. Guyman and her daughter. How do they get along? Well, you said it yourself. Melissa's her daughter. Yeah. What do you heard? Hmm? Somebody's been talking about how Joan treats the kid. Well, maybe you better tell her. I don't want to get her in no trouble. You understand that? Yeah. Well, I'd be down here watching the television, maybe doing some ironing, and I'd hear Joan yell at the baby. Loud. She used words a kid shouldn't hear, not that young. Yes, ma'am. Of course, not that those kind of words are ever good for a youngster, but sure not for one only two years old. Yeah. Anyway, she'd yell for a while, then it'd be quiet. I guess she hit the kid a couple times. Things calmed down. Now, do you know if Mrs. Guyman ever hit her daughter? Well, sure. I saw it with my own eyes. Mm-hmm. We had words about it. Well, Joan told me to mind my own business. Said to keep my nose where it belonged. Told me how Melissa was her kid, and if she thought a slap would do some good, she was going to give it. Mm-hmm. She did. Only a couple times they weren't slaps. Pretty much. Like this, with a closed fist. They're right along here, right above the ear. A couple times in the face. I saw the kid with a black eye myself, sure. Does Mr. Guyman see his wife? Not that I know. She said a couple times that he doesn't. I don't think she even knows where he is. Kind of sad, you know. Yeah. What happened? That's how all the trouble started. Mr. Guyman. Both of them used to live here when they got married. First off, they seemed pretty happy. Didn't have no idea there was anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Then when the baby was born, the trouble started. It wasn't long before the whole building knew about it. Of course, there was a couple of people who had an idea before. What's that? About her. Ma'am? Oh, running around, down to the bars, drinking, talking with other men. Now, I'm not approved. Never been anybody who could say that about me. Nobody. Mm-hmm. But I just don't believe in married women doing it. Not them. That's what caused the trouble, then, huh? You just put it down to that. Oh, my, they had some big arguments. Big ones. Hear him all over the building. All over the block, I guess, if he was listening. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't long after that he walked out on her. Left her flat with a baby. I see. Backed right up and moved out. Even took his phonograph records, everything. I don't think she's seen him since. Well, are they divorced, you know? I don't know about that. A couple times she's talked about getting one. I don't think she's ever gone through with it. I see. No, she's planning on it. Okay. She wants to get married again. Told me that a hundred times, how she wants to find a man and settle down. Just about all she talks about. Yes, the big problem is Melissa. Mm-hmm. Well, I know she's had the chance. I know that for sure. Mm-hmm. A couple of the men have even talked to me about it. About how they want to marry Joan. Got a home for her. All comes back to the same thing. What's that? The kid. None of the men want a ready-made family. 
They're all willing to have one of their own, but it ain't easy for a woman with a two-year-old child. Not easy at all. Mm-hmm. I know she thought a couple times about leaving the kid with her sister. Some kind of problem there, too. See, they're always fighting about it. Do you know what the arguments were about? Sure. Joan's sister didn't think she was doing enough to support the kid, you know. Figured she ought to have more money. Any of these quarrels ever get violent? Yeah, I heard them upstairs, yelling and screaming at each other. Almost as bad as Joan and her husband. Sister saying that either she had to hand over more money or else take Melissa out of the house. Joan saying that she didn't care what happened to the kid, yelling all over the place. Terrible way they carried on. Mm-hmm. Be honest about it, I don't think either one of them really wanted a little girl. Neither one of them. Is that right? Both been just as happy if she'd never been born. Poor little kid. Wonder they didn't try to put her in another home, you know, find some people who wanted her. Would have given her a chance to grow up being loved. That's right. At least they could have done, given the little kid a chance. Oh, I don't know. Maybe someday Joan will wake up, realize what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe she will. Let's hope it's not too late. In the company of the manager, Frank and I checked Joan Guyman's room. There was no indication that she wasn't going to return. We asked Miss Vinden to notify us as soon as she heard from the Guyman woman. We returned to the office and checked with the crime lab. They'd finished going over the child's clothing and they hadn't found anything out of order. We put in a call to the coroner's office and we talked to Chief Deputy Coroner Vic Wallage. He told us that the autopsy would be held at 10 a.m. the following morning and that we should have the results by 11. He went on to say that in his examination of Melissa Guyman, he'd found several bruises on her neck and back. However, he was unable to tell us if the blows might have been strong enough to cause her death. 12.16 a.m., we ran the names Joan Guyman and her sister through r There was no record on the sister, but we found that the Guyman woman had been arrested several times in the last year on charges of 4127A, drunk. The rest of the night was spent in checking out the places she was known to have frequented. An attempt was made to find her husband without result. The next day, Frank and I met in the squad room early to put through a call to the coroner's office. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. What about the bruises? I see. How long is that going to take? Right. We'll keep in touch with you. Okay. Bye. How about it? They finished. What's the cause of death? They're still not sure. What do you mean? They think she might have been poisoned. The autopsy had failed to show the cause of death of Melissa Guyman. Further tests were to be conducted. In the meantime, the search for her mother continued. A check with a landlady showed the victim's mother hadn't returned to her home during the night. We contacted her sister, but she told us she hadn't heard from Joan Guyman. The afternoon papers carried a story on the little girl's death. Frank and I checked with Sergeant Jay Allen again, but he hadn't come up with anything new. 3.20 p.m. You want to go out and see the sister? I don't think it's going to do much good. She said she'd call if she heard anything. Yeah. I got it. You have an old spare? Yeah, that's right. Hmm? Yeah, we have. Oh, where are you? All right, stay right there. That's right. Huh? As soon as we can. Joan Guyman. Where is she? Bar down on East 5th. She know about the little girl? Yeah, wants to see us right away. Well, it makes us even. She's got more of a reason. Hmm? Says she killed her daughter. city hall and drove over to the bar. When we walked into the place, it appeared to be deserted. The bartender told us there was a woman answering the description we gave him in one of the rear booths. Joan Guyman was in her late 20s, but she looked at least 40. She'd been drinking heavily and she'd been crying. Mm, Yeah? Is that you're looking for? You're Miss Guyman? That's right. Who are you? Police officers. Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Yeah. I knew you'd be here. I look good. 
Why don't you sit right down and make yourself comfortable? Which one of you fellas I talk to? They talk to me. Yeah. Well, then you know why I asked you to come down here. Yes, ma'am. You want to tell us about it? No. How's that? You asked me if I wanted to talk about it. Well, I don't. I even want to think about it. I wish it never happened. Is that right? You probably think it's funny I'm not crying, don't you? Don't you? You think there's something wrong with me? My baby's dead and I'm not crying? Well, do you want to know why? You want to know? Why don't you tell us, lady? Because there ain't no tears left. Not a single one. I'm all cried out. That's why. Better put that down. You've had enough of that. I think I'll have a lot more. A lot more. You said you killed your little girl. Is that right? That's right. Well, tell us about it, will you? No reason not to. No reason for anything anymore. All right, go ahead. I killed her. I killed her. It's like I'd put a gun up to her head. I killed her. Is this the same? Go ahead. Oh, poor little kid. She didn't want much. Hardly anything. One of those dolls with the hair you can wave, that's all. The doll with curly hair and her mother. She got the doll. I gave it to her yesterday when we came back from the zoo. It's just saying how happy she was. She was happy. Another thing I, I wouldn't give her. No mother. Poor little kid. She didn't have no mother. Just me, that's all. It's me. Yeah. That's how I did it. What's that? Killed her. If I'd been her mother and kept her with me, it never would have happened. She'd be all right now. Neglect. That's what did it. Neglect. And I gave it to her. Never paid no attention to her. All the time, too busy with what I was doing. I didn't pay any attention to her. I didn't pay any attention at all. All right, come on, lady. Where are we going? Downtown. What for? I think we'll be able to talk better there. Oh, I don't want to go anyplace. I'm going to stay right here. My baby is dead. Poor little kid didn't have no mother. Why don't you just go away and leave me alone? You know, we can't do that. Why not? There are a lot of something that says you got to hound people. Is that what you're doing? Right. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. You leave me alone. You got no right to do this to me. Bartender! Come on back here and get off. These lousy cops are giving me trouble. Help me. Come on, lady. You're only making it harder on yourself. Leave me alone. Get away from me. Come on. Don't cause any more trouble. If you were a gentleman, you wouldn't do this to me. If you were a lady, we wouldn't have to. We took the woman back to the city hall. After several cups of hot coffee, she straightened out enough to give us a story. She went over each step of the previous day, naming all of the places she and her daughter had gone and all of the foods they'd eaten. There was no apparent cause for the child's death. In talking to her, we found that the child was wearing different clothing when she was brought to the hospital. Frank and I drove out to Mrs. Guyman's sister's home and picked up the dress and the coat the little girl had worn. It was turned over to the crime lab. 2.15 p.m. Juvenile Friday. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to check it. Right. Yeah, as soon as we know. Right. 
Ray Pinker over at the lab. Yeah? I just finished going over the little girl's dress. Find anything? Yeah, a couple of stains. Yeah? Traces of poison. Along with the crew from the crime lab, Frank, Mrs. Guyman, and I went back to her apartment where a thorough search was started. From the analysis of the stains found on the child's dress, Sergeant J. Allen said the death might have been caused by minute quantities of poison in another fluid. While he and his crew went over the apartment, Frank and I talked to Mrs. Guyman. Couldn't be anything here. Was the child alone at all yesterday? No, I don't think so. We went to the zoo and came back here. We gave her the doll and we played with that for a while. Mm-hmm. Did you leave the apartment at all? Yeah. Went down to the corner to make a phone call. Only gone a couple of minutes. Your daughter was here alone then? Yes, but she couldn't have gotten into anything. I was only gone a little while. Still playing with the doll when I got back. Miss Guyman, our crime lab seems to think she might have been poisoned by some sort of polish. Well, what do you mean? Looks like a metal polish of some kind. I don't have any of that in the house. You sure? Certainly. I don't know. My place. They have to tear everything up like this. It'll all be straightened out. I hope so. Seems like there's never going to be an end to it. Joe? Yeah, Jack. See you a minute. Mm-hmm. What do you got? I think this is it. I found out in the kitchen under the sink. Metal polish. Yeah. Isn't one of the standard brands. Certainly isn't one of the off brands either, is it? Uh-uh. I've never seen it before. Wow. Well, the bottle's almost empty. Cap was off when we found it. Any chance it might have spilled out? No, it doesn't look like it. Not on the floor around the bottle. You want to come out in the kitchen? We'll check it for prints. Uh-huh. They got the kid out there. All right. Can you tell for sure, Jay? No, we can get an idea, though. There, Joe, it's coming through. You see there? Yeah. What do you think? After all, the child's prints, to be sure. It looks like it, though. The fingers are pretty small. Yeah, you can see yourself. Pretty tiny. Well, I guess that does it. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. What'd they find? You know how it happened? We think so, yeah. How? We found an empty bottle of metal polish in the kitchen. Looks like your daughter drank some of it. She couldn't have. I was with her all the time. She couldn't have gotten to it. You said you left her alone. But not that long. She didn't have time. I was only gone a couple of minutes. That's all. Just a couple of minutes. That was long enough. It's not true. Just making it up. Trying to make it all my fault. No, ma'am. Yes, you are. You're trying to make out I did kill her. You're saying it's my fault. Well, it isn't. Well, then you tell us. Huh? Whose fault is it? The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On August 18th, an inquest was held in the coroner's office in and for the county of Los Angeles, state of California. After examining all the evidence, a coroner's jury decided that the death of Melissa June Guyman was due to accidental poisoning. You have just heard Dragnet. The authentic story of your police force in action and starring Jack Webb, a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Dragnet, The Big Child, an episode from the spring of 1955 
and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, where your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. I mentioned at the top of the show that the past five years of the big broadcast have been a collaboration. We've had the guidance and support of our program director, Letty Holman, and WAMU's on-air operations manager, Douglas Bell, who's also served as our audio engineer, as have several of his wonderful colleagues. Most important of all, however, has been the fabulous Jill Errold Bailey, our co-producer, who, as I often say, has forgotten more old-time radio than I'll ever know, and who has the rich intellect, the generous spirit, and the warm sense of humor that marks the best collaborators. Quite simply, we couldn't do it without her. Jill brings so much to this on-air party every week, including a slightly different aesthetic, which means you benefit by hearing a wider range of programs than either one of us would present by ourselves. Here's a case in point, an episode of one of Jill's favorite series, and an important one, My Favorite Husband. It served as the prototype of one of the most successful television situation comedies of all time, I Love Lucy. And whatever you think of sitcoms, or of this particular sitcom, you'll admire Lucille Ball's vocal and comedic virtuosity. Her timing is impeccable. From January 28, 1949, and CBS, and with a reference to the elderly actor Lionel Barrymore, here is Lucille Ball, along with Richard Denning, in My Favorite Husband. It's time for My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. Hello, everybody. Yes, it's the new Gay Family series starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning. Brought to you by the Jell-O family of desserts. J-E-L-L-O, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. That's Jell-O. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O puddings. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O tapioca puddings. Yes, sirree. And now Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper. Two people who live together and like it. As we look in on the Coopers tonight, we see a story unfolding. A story that started a week ago. One night when George and Liz were walking home from a movie. Well, that was a pretty good show, Liz. I bet you'd have liked it better if you hadn't slept through it. I did not sleep through it. All right. Tell me what it was about. Well, uh... <laughs> well, I enjoyed the evening anyway. Oh, come here, George. I want to show you something in the store window. Wait a minute. Look at those golf clubs. Oh, boy, could I stand a new set of those. Oh, golf clubs, schmolf clubs. I want to show you something important. A hat. Right here, George, in Lily sachets. Look. Well, what do you think of it? Oh, Liz, I thought this was supposed to be a high-class store. It is. Well, look at that. The window dresser left the remains of his lunch on that stand. That's the hat. (laughs) 
You're kidding. That little mess of vegetables? It's not a mess of vegetables. It's an original model symbolizing spring. Can I buy it, George? It's only $75. $75 for... What? $75? Well, that isn't much for an original model. Well, you can get the real original at the market for 25 cents. Oh, now stop it. Not only that, you can munch on it if you got hungry. That's not funny. $75 for a hat. But I asked them to hold it for me, and if I don't get it, Iris Atterbury will buy it. Good. She's got the face to go with a New England boiled dinner. <laughs> oh, George Cooper, you're so mean to me. And so the next morning, Liz sadly went in to tell the sales lady the bad news. Yes, I showed my husband the hat last night, Miss McCain. Oh, good. Did he like it? No, he hated it. You should have heard him. I'm surprised his language didn't set off the sprinkler system. Oh, my. Well, then there's only one thing to do, Mrs. Cooper. Yes, wrap it up. I'll take it. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Mrs. Cooper. Morning, dear. Well, how's my wonderful little husband this morning? Give me a big kiss, darling. Hmm, you're much too nice for this time of the morning. Have you done something you shouldn't, Liz? No, no, I'm just happy, that's all. This is the prettiest day in the world, and I'm married to the prettiest man in the world. Oh, Liz, you're exaggerating. I've seen prettier days than this. <laughs> Come on, give me a big hug. Come on, give me a big hug. Hold me tight. Tighter. Tighter. Oh, but Liz! Go on, pretend I'm a banana and squeeze me out of my skin. <laughs> oh, Liz, you're crazy. Hey, I thought today was Friday. Well, it is. Then why have you got your sport clothes on? George, you didn't lose your job, did you? No. Oh, you'll never believe it, but old man Atterbury gave me a day off. No. Yeah. He said, George, you've done such a good job for such a long time. I think you should take the day off and enjoy yourself. What's he been doing? Eating weeple nuts? <laughs> I don't ask questions. I just have fun. <clears throat> well, I'm going to play golf with Corey Cartwright. Doesn't sound like Mr. Atterbury to me. Hey, that must be Corey out front now. See you later, Liz. Goodbye, dear. Have a good game. Oh, uh, did you get your caddy back from the factory? Caddy? Yes, the one you had a new head put on. <laughs> oh, when are you going to learn the right terms? That was a brassy. A caddy is the boy who carries your clubs. Oh, I thought he was called a birdie. <laughs> I give up. Come on, give me a kiss. Goodbye, darling. Katie, he's gone. I can show you my new hat. Where is it? Right here. Now, don't look till I get it fixed. Turn around. But how can you ever wear it without him seeing it? Oh, Katie, I'm not going to wear it until I've saved up enough to pay for it myself. But I just ordered it to keep Iris Atterbury from getting it. There. How do you like it? Oh, why, it's... Uh, I better get my glasses, Mrs. Cooper. It looks like a businessman's lunch to me. <laughs> just a bunch of vegetables. It is a bunch of vegetables. Yes. Oh, say, that's real cute. A bunch of vegetables and a little mouse. Ah! Mouse? Yes, he's nibbling the carrot. Get him off! Get him off! Oh, it isn't a mouse. It's a turnip. Oh, my eyes. <laughs> Thank goodness. Say, that's an idea, though. With all these vegetables, I hope the birds don't see this hat. Don't worry. They'll spot it all right. <laughs> Run, Mrs. Cooper. What's the matter? It's Mr. Cooper. He's coming back. Oh. <gasps> Too late. He's here. Quick, give me the newspaper. I'll hold it up so he won't see my hat. Hey, that wasn't Corey at all. Some fellow across the street. Uh, why don't you wait for Corey outside, dear? 
What? Why, I said, why don't you wait for Corey outside, dear? Is there something wrong with your eyes, Liz? Uh, why don't you wait for Corey outside, dear? Why are you holding that paper so close to your face? It's right up against your nose. Well, I'm nearsighted, dear. I always read like this, dear. You do? Yes, dear. Upside down? Oh, dear. <laughs> Liz, put that paper down. I see your hat. There's a mirror on the wall in back of you. Oh. Well, now, don't worry, George. I can explain everything. Well, I'm waiting. Well, I'm thinking. <laughs> I thought so. Uh, give me a second now. All right. This better be a good one. Well, maybe you better give me a little longer then. Uh, Iris Atterbury. Iris Atterbury what? I don't know, but it's a good start. <laughs> I know. Iris called and asked me to pick it up for her. Mm. Now, why would she do a thing like that? That's a very good question. <laughs> All right, let's put it this way. When did she call? Uh, yesterday. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Iris Atterbury has been out of town for a week. She has? Yes. That's just the kind of a sneaky trick you could expect from her. Now, Liz, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Oh, George. Now, don't start crying. You're not going to get around me this time with tears. Won't you please forgive me? No. Oh, please forgive me, George. No. Oh, oh well, it was a good try. <laughs> Sit down, Liz. I want to have a long talk with you. Now, about that habit you have of twisting the truth around. Well, I have to go milk a cow. Come back here and sit down. Now, Liz, I want you to promise me never to tell anything but the truth. I don't want to ever catch you lying again. Neither do I. I didn't want you to catch me this time. How can you joke about it? This is serious. Don't you realize that when you tell a fib, you have to tell another one, and then another, until you're all tangled in a whole web of untruths, only to end up being caught anyway. But now, what happens when you tell the truth in the first place? You get caught right away. Now, stop that. I'm sorry, George. You're absolutely right. I'm ashamed of myself, and I promise from now on, I'll make you proud of me. Well, that's better. I only hope you mean it. Oh, I do, dear. You'll see. I'll get it. Oh, I hope it isn't Corey saying he can't Hello. Hello, Liz. Yes? This is Mr. Atterbury, Liz. How's George? George? Yes, is he feeling any better? He was terribly sick this morning. He was? Yes. He called me at home and said he just felt awful, much too ill to come to work. Oh, he did, huh? Yes. Oh, he must be keeping it from you because he doesn't want you to worry. Uh, yes. I just can't tell you how bad he sounded. He was groaning and wheezing, and his voice was so weak I could hardly hear it. Mm -hmm. Said his head felt like it was going to be split open any minute. You know, he may be right. <laughs> well, tell me, Liz, how is he now? Awful sick? Not as sick as he's going to be. Well, Liz, I was wondering if I ought to send my doctor out to look him over. I think that's a very good idea. No, no, wait a minute, Miss Atterbury. I have a better idea. I'll see if I can get the poor boy to come to the phone. All right, Liz, if he feels up to it. Hang on a minute. Oh, George, come here a minute, dear. What is it, Liz? Telephone. It's for you, George Washington. For me? Who is it? It's Corey, dear. He wants to know if you still want to play golf. 
Well, what's the matter with him? Certainly I want to play. Give me that phone. Here you are. Hello, Corey. What's the matter with you? Certainly I want to play golf. I never felt better in my life. Is that so, George? Corey? What's the matter, dear? Hmm? This is Mr. Atterbury, George. What a dirty trick. I ought to wring your neck. What? Oh, no, not you, Mr. Atterbury. Well, I think you'd better get out of your sick bed and drag yourself down to work, Cooper. Uh, yes, sir, Mr. Atterbury, sir. Right away, sir. I'll, I'll be right down, sir. Goodbye, sir. Who was it, sir? Liz? Sit down, George. I want to have a long talk with you. Now, about that habit you have of twisting the truth around. Never mind. Don't you realize that when you tell a fib, you have to tell another and another until you're tangled in now, the Now, stop that. Liz, how could you do this to me? <laughs> Oh, George, you'll have to admit it was your own fault. Look, I'll make a deal with you. You let me keep the hat, and I'll call Atterbury and tell him you were delirious. No. Why not? What you did is just as bad as what I did. It is not. What I did is accepted business practice. Accepted by whom? Everybody. What's sick leave for if you don't take it? What about the poor people who are always well? <laughs> Will you give me that again with the same inflection? Well, besides that sourpuss, baggy-eyed, two-faced, old skinflint Atterbury has been taking advantage of me for years. Why, I had a day off coming, and you cheated me out of it. Give me the hat, Liz. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to take it back and buy myself some golf clubs with the money. Of all the nerve, you are not. I want that hat. Over my dead body. That's the best offer I've had today. Wait. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got a wonderful idea, George. What? I saw it in a picture once. Look, we'll both swear to tell the absolute truth for 24 hours. And whoever makes the other one lie gets the $75 to spend. Gee, you, you mean even little white lies? Little white ones, big black ones, polite gray ones, anything that isn't true. <laughs> We're liable to learn a lot of things about each other, Liz. <laughs> I'm game. Okay, you've got a deal. From this moment on, we tell the absolute truth. Shake. Shake. <laughs> you know, uh, if I were the suspicious type of wife, I... I know what I'd ask you, George. Huh? What? I'd say, uh, George, those three nights you were working late at the office last week, how much did you win? Uh, $15. <gasps> you, you mean you did play poker? Oh, I hate you, George Cooper! <laughs> Here are some facts you may not have known about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO has grown and prospered since its founding in 1949. Yet the United States has not underwritten most of the expense. As a matter of fact, European members have paid for 85% of the total cost, have supplied 60% of the equipment and supplies used by NATO forces, and they have provided the major share of its manpower. NATO is a voluntary association of sovereign states, each bearing its fair share of the burden. We can all be proud of NATO and grateful for it, too, for NATO is guarding your freedom. And now, back to the Coopers. Liz and George have made a pact to speak nothing but the absolute truth for 24 hours 
The forfeit being a new hat that Liz is crazy about against a set of golf clubs George has his eye on. Well, right now, Liz is so put out with George that she's not talking to him at all. Oh, Liz, it was your idea. I had to tell you the truth about playing poker. Katie, would you kindly tell Mr. Cooper I'm not speaking to him? She's not speaking to you, Mr. Cooper. Well, tell her I don't care. He don't care. Ha! Ha! Ah. Ah. Oh, why don't you go take a walk? Oh, why don't you go take a walk? Okay, I'm leaving. Okay, I'm leaving. Who cares? Who cares? And I may not come back. And I may not come back. Well, I don't care if you never come back. Go on, leave. Well, I don't care if you never come back. Go on, leave, you big dope. Hey. <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Cooper, I got carried away. Sorry, Mr. Cooper. Oh, that's all right, Katie. This whole thing is pretty silly. <laughs> well, I'm not speaking to you until the 24 hours are up anyway. It's safer that way. Well, you can kiss me without talking to me. Mm, all right. Not bad But it won't do you any good I'm getting those golf clubs Or my name isn't George Cooper Goodbye, Sam (laughs) Katie, I have to watch myself now He's going to try some fancy tricks Unless I try them first Now, you can listen, Katie, but don't laugh. He might hear you. What are you going to do, Mrs. Cooper? Well, I'll pretend it's my Aunt Liza calling. He can't stand her. When he hears she's coming to visit us, he'll make up a lie to keep her away. But your Aunt Liza lives in Syracuse. Never mind. Leave it to me. Does this sound old enough, Katie? Hello, Mr. Cooper. (laughs) It sounds like Lionel Barrymore's grandmother. (laughs) Second National Bank. Mr. George Cooper, please. I'll ring him. Hello. Mr. George Cooper? Yes? One moment, please. Syracuse is calling. Go ahead, Syracuse. Hello. Is this Mr. George Cooper? Yes. What do you want, Liz? Oh, you... (laughs) How'd you know it was me? Because your Aunt Liza always calls collect. Oh, you're so smart. Well, I'm smarter than you are. Oh, boy, what a couple of phonies you sent over here today. What are you talking about? I didn't send anybody over there. Oh, come on. Admit it, Liz. You sent them over to catch me in a lie. Cross my heart, I didn't, George. George? George, what's the matter? Uh, You mean that fellow from the income tax department was on the level? Income tax? Oh, you mean you told him the truth? Down to the last penny. Oh, no! I even pointed out where I stretched things a little. Oh, that's wonderful, and it serves you right. What do you mean when you said a couple of phonies? Don't tell me you got stung twice today. I guess I did. The other one uh, was a lady from the newspaper who interviewed me. I'm afraid I gave away a few secrets. Oh, really? What kind of questions did she ask you? It was for a series on the society page called The Truth About My Wife. 
have a bad connection, George. Say that again, please. It was for a series called The Truth About My Wife. Oh! Well, gee whiz, Liz, I, I thought you sent her over. Call her back, cancel it. Tell her you were lying. When is she going to print it? Well, she thought it was so good, she rushed back to get it in tonight's paper. Oh, I'll call him up. I'll threaten to sue. Goodbye, George. Oh, Katie, this is terrible. What happened? George told a news reporter some awful things about me. Did he lie? Worse than that, he told the truth. <laughs> Evening Bugle. Hello, is tonight's paper out yet? Yes, it is. It's being delivered now. Oh, this is Mrs. George Cooper. Is there a story about me on the society page? No, there isn't. Oh, thank goodness. They wouldn't waste that story. It's on the front page. Oh, no! <laughs> About my wife by George Cooper. Let's see. Oh, my wife Liz is a charming, beautiful, talented woman of twenty-six. Well, that's not bad. She has been charming and beautiful ever since I can remember. She has been talented ever since I can remember. She has also been twenty-six ever since I can remember. My wife, Liz, is a natural beauty. She has naturally lovely skin, a naturally good figure, and naturally white teeth. She also has red hair. <laughs> Katie, can I sue him for libel? Well, you can if he's lying. I'm dead. <laughs> what else does he say? Oh, let's see. Some men complain about the way their wives look when they wake up in the morning. Luckily, I don't have this complaint, as my wife never gets up till the afternoon. <laughs> and when she does, she's so full of cold cream, curlers, facial masks, and chin supports, I can't tell what she looks like anyway. <laughs> Katie, I think I'm about to make myself a widow. Liz? Liz? Is it safe to come in? George, darling, come in, honey. How's my little husband tonight, huh? I don't like the sound of this. There's a booby trap someplace. <laughs> Why, George, you don't think I'd be mad about a little thing like that story now, do you? Come on in. I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. Good evening, George. Mr. Atterbury. Yes, your boss. I was telling him about that silly little game we play called Telling the Truth. And he thought it would sort of be fun to come over and ask you some questions. Yes, yes, I love games. Let's play, George. <laughs> I don't feel much like playing. Well, don't force him, Mr. Atterbury. I'll play it with you. You just asked me how George described you this morning. All right, Liz. How did George describe me this morning? Well, he said that you were a... Wait, Liz, there's a hat I want to buy for you, all full of beautiful little vegetables. <laughs> he said you were a very nice... Boss. What? <laughs> I couldn't do it to you, George. Hey, what's going on here, anyway? <laughs> oh, get that look on George's face. He thought I was going to say two-faced, baggy-eyed old skin flint. What? <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, he did, eh? What else did he say? Well, I'm in it this far. Might as well go ahead. Oh, no, you don't. If it's going to come up, I'll have the pleasure of saying it myself. Mr. Atterbury, 
You ought to be ashamed of yourself. That's not an office you run down there. It's a sweatshop. Why? Punch the clock in the morning. Punch the clock for lunch. Punch the clock when you go home. Why, you don't even give your employees the dignity of being on their honor. No wonder they see your face on that clock every time they punch it, and I don't blame them. Why, George! Who do you think you're talking to? You, you baggy-eyed old skinflint. Go ahead, George, tell him. I'm tired of having to turn in a stub every time I want a new pencil. Yeah. Yeah, and coming to you for the key every time I want to wash my hands. Yeah. Yeah, all right, so this means my job. Well, you're not firing me, I quit. Hey, George Cooper, I'm proud of you. I feel pretty good about it myself. Well, so do I. What? George, that's the kind of courage I like, huh? There are a lot of things wrong down at the office. Maybe it is the fault of an old skinflint. Baggy-eyed. He's serious. George, I'd like you to keep your job and set up a new office system. Yee-hoo! Liz, you can keep that hat and I'll pay for it. Yee-hoo! Will you pay for it before tomorrow? What's the rush? Well, you might, might not feel like it after you see tomorrow's evening bugle. I wrote a little article for him. Liz, not... Uh, that's right, George, the truth about my husband. Oh, no! George! George, wake up! Huh? What? What's the matter? Talk to me. Talk? At four in the morning? Mm-hmm. Did you wake me up just for that? I'll go to sleep. I can't sleep. I want a glass of water. Well, get up and get one. I can't get up. I'm too sleepy. <laughs> oh, Liz. What's that? What? Told you I heard a noise downstairs. Oh, you're imagining things. I am not. Get up and see. Maybe there's a burglar down there. Okay, okay. All burglars downstairs say aye. <laughs> Nobody down there. George, as long as you're up, will you get me a glass of water? <laughs> I thought so. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? I'll hate myself in the morning. Good night, George. <laughs> You have been listening to My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning, and based on characters created by Isabel Scott Rorick. Tonight's program was produced and directed by Jess Oppenheimer, who wrote the script with Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll, Jr. Original music was composed by Marlon Skiles and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. The part of Katie the Maid was played by Ruth Parrott. Lucille Ball will soon be seen in the Paramount picture, Sorrowful Jones. Be sure to listen to Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband next week. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The producer, the writers, and the star of that show went on to develop it into a television sitcom called I Love Lucy. 
That was an episode of My Favorite Husband from the beginning of 1949. You heard it here on the big broadcast, thanks to our cherished co-producer, Jill Arald Bailey. Thanks for everything, Jill. And as Jill and I celebrate our fifth anniversary on this show by playing some of our very favorite old-time radio programs tonight, it's inevitable that we're going to hear an episode of The Whistler. Nearly every time I introduce the series, I mention that it has my absolute favorite opening of all time, including the haunting musical theme by Wilbur Hatch, who, by the way, conducted the music on that My Favorite Husband installment we just heard, whistled by the siffleur or puckalist Dorothy Roberts. But there's much more to the show than that. The great use of a dramatic narrator, Bill Foreman, as the whistler, the outstanding casts, the best voices Hollywood had to offer, and most of all, the writing. Every episode has a twist ending, and somehow it always surprises me. And all of this was under the guiding hand of the producer, George W. Allen. The sponsor, Signal Oil, only had gas stations in the West, so they had no real interest in the shows reaching a national audience. If it had, it most certainly would have been as fondly remembered today as, say, Lights Out or Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Okay, enough already. Here's an episode called Night Final. The title comes from the time when newspapers published several editions throughout the day. It was distributed by the CBS Pacific Network on January 28, 1948, and the series The Whistler. The Signal Oil Program... The Whistler. I am the Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Yes, friends, it's time for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. Rated tops in popularity for a longer period of time than any other West Coast program in radio history. And now, The Whistler's strange story. Night Final. She was a newspaper woman and a good one. Words came easily to her. Fresh, new, interesting ways of saying what she saw or felt or heard. Her critics and colleagues agreed that regardless of her shortcomings as a person, Helen Conover was a superlative reporter, holder of the Guild Award for on-the-spot reporting, the first woman to win such an honor. Yet now, as she stood in the courtroom, she found it was hard to put her feelings into words. Impossible to describe the exhilarating sense of freedom she felt when the judge announced his decision. That's all, Mrs. Delavan? That's all, Your Honor. Very well. Divorce granted. As she left the courtroom and started down the hall, she saw her husband's lawyer a few steps ahead. Uh, Mr. Jackson. Huh? Oh, Mrs. Delavan. Oh. I mean, Miss Connell. Well, you almost got out of the building before I could thank you. Thank me? Yes, for everything. For the quick, painless way you handled the divorce. Miss Conover, 
Divorce, at best, is never a painless operation. <laughs> well, it is the way you handle it. Is Malcolm really out of town? No, of course not. But then why didn't he... It was all arranged beforehand. I convinced Malcolm it would be wise not to contest the divorce. Oh? Why? Uh, I'd rather not go into that now. He's at home, I think. You'd probably know better than I. Mal was such an angel about it. You know, somehow I suddenly feel a little tender toward him. He was so gentlemanly and everything. Considering the circumstances, I'd say he was. What do you mean, Mr. Jackson? You noted, of course, that Paul Wilson's name wasn't brought into the proceeding. Well? Didn't that strike you as unusual? Wilson was a full-fledged correspondent if I ever saw one. Your husband isn't entirely blind, you know. See here, if you're implying... You can take it any way you like. Malcolm's a very generous man, Miss Conover. Had he been otherwise, this divorce proceeding might have had some unfortunate overtones. For you, at least. Well, there was nothing wrong. I made it very clear about Paul and you. Yes, yes, of course. Incidentally, Malcolm told me he'd like to see you when it's convenient. You might drop around sometime today. Perhaps I will. Fine. Good day, Miss Conover. Hello, Malcolm. Oh, nice of you to ring the bell, Helen. Oh, now, don't be that way. I've come to tell you how nice you were. For what? Being such a good sport. We can still be good friends. Yes, I suppose that's the fashionable thing for divorced couples, uh, particularly among your pseudo-intellectual friends. <laughs> Sorry, darling. I'm not going to let you draw me into an argument, especially now. With love on the wing, huh? Right. Let's have a drink, Mal, to our separate futures. Well, if you say so. What'll it be? Bourbon, dear. Oh, you, uh, you might find something on the desk that'll interest you. Oh, don't tell me. Let me get Oh, here we are. New letter opener. Oriental sheath knife, isn't it? Fourteen notches on the handle. Ooh, long and bloody history. Well, why do you ever collect these things? It isn't Oriental. It's South American, and that's not what I'm talking about. Take another look. Hmm? Nothing else here. Just a letter. Now, where did you get this letter? In the mail. Perfectly normal routine. It's from Paul. Why is he writing you? He'll be in town tomorrow night. For some reason or other, he wants me to come to his apartment at nine. Here's your drink. But why would he... Oh, maybe at long last he's heard about the divorce. Airline pilots out of touch with things, you know. You're going to see him? Of course. Let's drink to him, Helen, to our good friend, that wife stealer, superb Paul Wilson. That's not necessary. <laughs> you saw now, because you didn't even know he was going to be in town. I knew it and you didn't. <laughs> it's a great story. Man bites dog. Stop it, Mal. I won't have you talking like that. All right, Helen. You're a great girl, a fine reporter. I resent losing you, I admit it. It's just too bad you didn't take enough time out from your reporting to learn to be a woman. Now you'd better go. Listen, Mal, I... I... said you'd better go. He's probably in town now waiting for you. Well? All right. Goodbye, Malcolm. Oh, Miss Conover. Oh, unholy mess as usual. Still setting up big headlines for little stories. Now, if you folks was on oh, the you're ball... you're never satisfied, Eddie. Where's Ann? Well, I just saw her go into the office. Thanks. Hi, Bern. Uh, what do you say? Say, your story this morning was great. Ann? Well, crack out the champagne. I hear you did the trick. Yep, it's all over. The old Liberty Bell let freedom ring. Skip it. Hmm? Any calls? 
Our dear city editor called, wants to be sure you're covering the circus opening tomorrow night. Though why you do it, I'll never know. <laughs> Son of an Annie. My first assignment was a circus opening. Haven't missed one since. Though I wish I hadn't promised this time. Other things on your mind, darling? Paul Wilson, maybe? Paul, he called me here? Shouldn't he have? To tell him where I was. Shouldn't I have? And you can be exasperating. Sorry. I guess I'm just jealous of the success type. A career. Lots of men. But really, did you want me to tell Mr. Wilson you were in court? Shedding last year's husband. You didn't? No. Hmm. wonder why he's here. How did you ever keep it from him, dear? Uh, the divorce, I He's out of town most of the time. I just didn't tell him. He'll be surprised. Yeah. I suppose you have it all planned to marry him as soon as it's final. Don't <laughs> rush me. I'm just out of this one. Um, what did he say? He wants to see you at eight tonight. I told him you were tied up tomorrow with the circus. Oh. Uh, you'll go with me, won't you? Uh-oh. That's your department. Why don't you take Paul? I have another pass you can use. Business and pleasure and all that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm afraid he doesn't love me that much, but I might ask him tonight. Let me know what he says, will you? Why? Oh, I don't know. Just curious. For the rest of the afternoon, you try to catch up on your work. But it's hard, Helen, trying to concentrate with your mind on Paul this way. Trying to analyze this strange new freedom. Different now, with a thrill gone out of it and a curious, unsettled, half-bitter feeling in its place. And it hasn't left you hours later as you drive toward Paul's apartment in a taxi. Halfway across town, the driver pulls up at a red flare on the left of the speedway. Oh, what is it, driver? Accident up ahead. Looks like a tough all right, one. All right, oh, all wait right, a minute, driver. Wait a minute. Keep it moving. Oh, what is it, officer? Get back in that car there, lady. Helen Connor, Daily Post. Huh? Oh, reporter, huh? Yeah, was it bad? Yeah, three people killed. One of them was a state senator. Cavanaugh was his name. Senator Cavanaugh? Yeah. Uh, driver, here you are. You go along. I've got a story to file. Yes, Helen, on duty or not, you're a reporter above everything else. A state senator killed. The bodies of two high school students in the wreckage of the other car. So it's two hours later, nearly ten o'clock, when you finally arrive at Paul's apartment. Well, so you finally decided to show up, darling. I'm sorry, Paul. I got here as soon as I could. There was a bad accident. I had to get the story in. You're not supposed to be working this late. Well, I'm a reporter, dear. When the story breaks and I'm there, the Daily Post gets it. Yeah. For God, for country, and the Daily Post, eh? <laughs> but I'm not a reporter now, dear. Oh? I'm a woman. A single woman. Yeah, I heard about it. Aren't you glad? Nope. What? what did you say? Helen, just because I buy you a few drinks, take you dancing a couple of times, doesn't mean I intend to break up a man's home. Paul, I told you about that. You didn't tell me half of it. A man named Jackson looked me up. Your husband's lawyer. Jackson, what did he say? You should have let me in on all these plans of yours, Helen. Malcolm, too. What are you trying to say? I wouldn't have let you go ahead with this divorce. It's all over, Paul. I have my divorce. I did it for you so I could be free. You made a mistake. A bad one. You see, I'm not getting a divorce. You... You're married. That's right. And Malcolm knew it. I don't know how, but he did. He what? Seems that you uh, got into the wrong game, baby. Ordinarily, it'd be time to pick up your chips and go home. Now you can't even do that. You 
You can't do this to me. It was your own doing, Helen. Don't go blaming me. What? Careful, sweetheart. You'll spoil your makeup. You'll never get away with it, Paul. Do you hear me? You'll never get away with it. You don't know how funny you look, really. Did you hear what I said? Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't. No. Oh. That's a dirty shame. <laughs> that that vase belonged to my favorite aunt. <laughs> Don't slam the door. With the prologue of Night Final, the Signal Oil Company is bringing you another strange story by The Whistler. But first, a word about some of the convenience features that today's drivers can enjoy. More and more of the new cars are featuring no clutch, no gear shift. Some even have windows that raise or lower automatically at the mere touch of a button. But whether or not your car has these features, there's one convenience that every driver can enjoy. That is a signal credit card. For instance, instead of paying cash every time you stop for gas, oil, or a lube job... You merely tell the signal dealer to charge it. And because signal credit cards are honored at all signal service stations throughout the six Pacific Coast states from Canada to Mexico, you'll find one especially helpful on trips. You're relieved of the necessity of carrying large sums of money, yet you're prepared for those unexpected emergencies that can arise. Moreover, at the end of each month, when you pay for your driving needs with one check, just as you now pay your phone, light, or department store bill, you have a handy record of what it costs to run your car. When you consider how much ease and pleasure all of this adds to your driving, it's no wonder more and more motorists are stopping by their signal service station to fill out an application blank for a signal credit card. And now back to the whistler. Blood rushes to your head as you run out of the apartment, down the stairs to the street, a hatred for Paul boiling up inside you, twice as powerful now as the love ever was, because it's a helpless hatred, because Paul is up there now laughing at you, and you're helpless. Then, as the damp fog begins to clear your head, as your heart stops pounding, a cold, curiously logical idea comes home to you. And you realize that the thing you shouted in anger at him back in the apartment, that you could kill him, wasn't really hysterical at all. It was a statement of fact. You could kill him, Helen. You aren't helpless at all. By the time you arrive at the office the next morning, you've decided exactly how it's going to happen. It begins with Anne. There are things you must plant in her mind, and with Anne, you have to be careful. Congratulations, darling. You scooped the whole town with that crash story last night. Really? Oh, now, don't be wide-eyed, dear. It doesn't become you. Well, well it was a lucky break, Anne. And you did a nice job of covering it, I might add. Mm-hmm. Say, what's wrong with you? You're not very enthusiastic. Oh, it's nothing, Anne. Oh, cut it out. I know better. Now, what is it? It's Malcolm. Oh? Malcolm's found out about Paul? Yes, and you know what a temper Malcolm has. Well, he was at his worst, made all sorts of threats against you. No, that's why I'm worried. 
acted as if he might take it out on Paul. You've never seen anyone so jealous, Anne. Well, keep them apart until it's over. That's all you can do. It's not so easy. You can't hide Paul in a crowd tonight. Hmm? How do you mean? Take him to the circus with you. That's the one place Malcolm won't go. Not in his frame of mind. Oh, <laughs> I think Paul isn't interested in circuses either. I still want company, though. How about you? Change your mind? Uh-uh. The boss won't let me off the rewrite desk. I'll be at it all night. Oh, I'm disappointed. I'm not. If you spot any stories, call me, will you? Sure, sure. Still wish you were going with me. They say it's quite a show. Yes, Helen, quite a show. But you knew all along that Anne would have to decline your invitation, didn't you? That was part of your plan. Part two takes place at the apartment, your old apartment, to which you've still got a key. From your years as Mrs. Delavan, you know that Malcolm isn't home. At his desk, you pick up Malcolm's long, thin letter opener, hide it in your purse. Half an hour later, wearing a conspicuous red bolero jacket, you're standing in line at the ticket booth in front of Seely Brothers' giant show. And there's a reason for not using your pass, isn't there, Helen? A red bolero jacket and a $50 bill. You know the man in the ticket booth will remember you, don't you, Helen? And inside the main tent, you slip the jacket off, turn it inside out, and fold it over your arm. Just one of the crowd again. And then a few minutes later, you slip quietly out a side exit and make your way to the street. It'll be a simple matter to reach Paul's apartment unnoticed on the crowded streetcar. You're standing in an alcove in the hall outside Paul's apartment, waiting for Malcolm to complete his visit and leave. It's nearly an hour before you see him come out and start down the stairs. Almost before he's out of sight, you're down the hall, ringing the doorbell. Helen. Aren't you going to ask me in, Paul? Should I? <laughs> There's a vase or two I forgot to nail down. I'm sorry, Paul. I, I won't stay long. Okay. Your timing was perfect. Dismissed your husband. Yes, I know. Oh? He showed me your letter, Paul. What did you talk about? Oh, Helen, it's all over. Why why go on talking about it? It meant a great deal to me, Paul. I'm sorry. No, you're not. Helen, please. Why did you come here? I want to say goodbye, Paul. Goodbye? Yes, I... I won't bother you anymore. Would you mind too terribly, Paul? Would you mind kissing me goodbye? Of course not. Come here. Oh, Paul. Helen, I, I never meant to. <laughs> Helen, you... It was a kiss of death, wasn't it, Helen? You stand for a moment looking down at Paul's still face. 
And then you hurry to the door, cautiously let yourself out of the apartment, hurry back to the circus. The crowd is pouring out of the main tent as you get there. You slip on the red bolero jacket, mingle with the others as they move away from the entrance, babbling excitedly. Hey, hey, hey what were their names? The Flying Carbonis. They've been working together for years. I never seen anything like it. Never. Oh, excuse me, lady. Certainly. A taxi. A taxi. Where to, lady? Daily Post. Uh, no, wait a minute. I'll call the story in. Take me home, driver. Brockhurst Apartments. Conover? Uh, give me the last paragraph again, will you? Sure. But while last night's performance followed the Shaw Brothers formula right down to the waltzing bear and the death-defying acrobatics of the Carboni troupe, its very adherence to circus tradition assures it a profitable engagement. Mm-hmm. A uh, profitable engagement in, uh, in a city which has long since demonstrated its loyalty to tinsel and tan bark. Got that? Right. Okay, print it. Well, this looks like it. Hello? This is Ann, Helen. Well, good heavens, Ann, it's three in the morning. If it's about that review, I... It isn't about the review, darling. You better brace yourself. I have some pretty shocking news. What is it? Paul Wilson was murdered tonight. What? They're holding Malcolm on suspicion. I'll be right down. And I got here as fast as... Ed, what are you doing here? Oh, I had a little extra work to do in the composing room tonight. Well, I've been talking to Ed about the murder, Helen. Horrible. I can't believe Malcolm That's would... just it. Neither can we. Pretty crude stuff, you know. Advertising a motive all over town like that. Then knocking off your rival with an oriental curio that a correspondent school detective could trace to you. He must have lost his reason. Oh, no. He was pretty jealous, but he wasn't stupid. Well, that's beside the point now. Because they want me down at police headquarters. You can relax, honey. Police headquarters is coming to you. What's this all about, Anne? Why Just are you a minute. Gonna... All right, Lieutenant Jacobs. This is Lieutenant Jacobs, Helen. How do you do? How do you do? I'd like to ask you a few questions. Well, I'd like to ask a few myself. You'll have a chance in just a moment, Miss Conover. I won't be long. You see, I only have one question. All right. Where were you at 10.15 last night? Well, Anne could have told you that. I was at the circus. Are you sure, dear? Well, I phoned the story into the rewrite desk. Didn't you stop to wonder why I wasn't on the rewrite desk? Well, no, I didn't. You should have. You see, I changed my mind. I went to the circus, too. I used the other path, the seat next to the one you were supposed to be using. Does this mean you actually suspect me of murdering Paul Wilson? Well, I admit it gave me pause. Your uh, ex-husband claims he and Wilson talked things over, that Wilson was giving you the air. That's a ridiculous lie. Malcolm is pretty sure of his facts. He suggested, quite loudly, too, that you were trying to frame him. It, uh, it all depends on that one point, Miss Conover. Where you were at 10.15 last night. I already told you. I was covering the circus. And if you're awfully concerned about that ticket business... We are. I'll produce the pass I didn't use at home in my tan coat. See, I changed my red bolero jacket and discovered when I got there I'd left the pass at home. So I bought a ticket in the grandstand. You can prove that? I think so. All I had was a $50 bill. The man at the ticket window was terribly irritated with me. I see. I suggest you find out who he is and ask him about the woman in the red bolero jacket. He'll remember me. Well, that's an angle. Now, let me tell you something, Lieutenant. 
My good friend Anne over here seems to have engineered this. You might be interested in her reasons. Wait a minute, First Helen. First off, she's been jealous of me and my position with this paper ever since she came here. She hates me. She'd do anything to ruin me and my career. Helen. You better tell the truth, Annie. It's all going in the record. And this is the topper, Lieutenant. I introduced her to my former husband at a cocktail party three years ago. She's been in love with him ever since. What? She'd do anything right now to save him. Ask her if that's true, Lieutenant. Ask her to answer that one under oath. Well, what about it, Miss Stoddard? All right, I... I do love him. The Whistler will return in just a moment with a strange ending to tonight's story. And now back to The Whistler. It's a tense scene, Helen, the three of you, Anne, Lieutenant Jacobs, and yourself. Grouped around the dingy rewrite desk under the cruel white light in your office at the Daily Post. Ed, the compositor from the press room, sitting quietly on the sidelines. It was an awkward moment, explaining away your absence at the circus. But you're sure now, with a ticket man available to place you at the circus at the time of the crime. With Anne admitting her love for Malcolm, that you're in the clear. It's almost a full minute after her admission that Anne finally speaks. Ed. Yeah? Bring me the paper, Ed. The morning edition with the review of the performance last night. You've got it. Oh, sure. Right here. Now, let's get this straight, Lieutenant. We're all agreed everything depends on where my capable colleague was. At the time, she claimed she was at the circus. Why don't you let him check my review, Annie? I've already read it. Yes. You see, it's a rather important piece of evidence. The next time you see that typescript, it'll be marked Exhibit A. What do you mean? You're a top reporter, Helen. Never missed a trick. But you did last night. That's why we didn't print your story. We used mine instead. You what? Take a look at that headline. <gasps> the black letters stab into your brain like neon. Swim before your eyes. The floor seems to open up and swallow you as the sense of it strikes home. Flying Carboni troop plunges to death in circus accident. You're unprepared, off balance now. No defense for this. Important piece of evidence, Helen. Marked Exhibit A. And as you try frantically to think of some excuse, some way out, Lieutenant Jacob starts bearing in with questions about Paul, about Malcolm, about the night, the apartment. The whole thing, Helen, the whole hideous truth. Until you can't think anymore. Until you find yourself admitting every word of it. Can I? I, I, I guess that's all. Now, just let me sleep. Leave me alone. They'll do what they can for you down at headquarters, Miss Conover. Come on, let's go. Oh, uh, thanks, Ann. It was a pleasure. <laughs> and a good idea. You know, we could use a head like yours downtown. What? What are you talking about? That morning edition we had Ed print up especially for you, Miss Carnover. You see, the flying Carbonis didn't fall last night. But you did. And for a phony headline at that.
Let that whistle be your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler, each Wednesday night at this same time. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. Signal has asked me to remind you to get the most driving pleasure, drive at sensible speed, be courteous, and obey traffic regulations. It may save a life, possibly your own. Featured in tonight's story were Betty Lou Gerson and Joan Banks. The Whistler was produced by George W. Allen, with story by Bob Platt and music by Wilbur Hatch. It was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. Next Wednesday, for a full hour of mystery over most of these stations, tune in a half hour earlier. Enjoy The Saint as well as The Whistler. This is Marvin Miller speaking. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. The Whistler and the Strange Story Night Final from the winter of 1948 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. The circus setting of that Whistler episode was another way co-producer Jill chose to celebrate our fifth big broadcast anniversary tonight. You see, I began my career in the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus as a clown. So Jill chose that particular Whistler story and the particular Fred Allen show we're about to hear. With their non-stop topical jokes from fourscore years ago, any of Maestro Allen's broadcasts demand a lot of explanation nowadays. And we're going to hear a full hour program, so there are quite a few references. Drugstore lunch counters that were common back in the day and penny scales for weighing yourself the BMT subway line in New York, and the term Sloppy Joe's, meaning any cheap, fast restaurant. The coin-operated automat restaurants, the playwright William Saroyan, comedians Bob Hope and Jack Benny, the latter about to appear as a guest on the Quiz Kids show, the Radio Performers Union, AFRA, now part of SAG-AFTRA, Bing Crosby's ownership of racehorses, the old minstrel show characters Mr. Bones and the Interlocutor, the Morris Plan banks that loaned money on the installment plan, other radio shows including One Man's Family, President Franklin Roosevelt's Fireside Chats, and The Aldrich Family, and you'll hear the orchestra under the direction of Al Goodman play one of the most bizarre arrangements ever of the Saint-Saëns aria from Samson and Delilah, My Heart at Thy Sweet Voice. The show is vintage Fred Allen in other ways, too. It demonstrates both his broadcasting innovation and his satire. He introduced comedy techniques that later variety show hosts like Steve Allen, Johnny Carson, and Joan Rivers 
adopted. For example, making deliberately bad jokes so that they can be followed by a truly funny ad lib and interviewing members of the studio audience. And Fred Allen risked everything by criticizing sponsors, advertising agencies, and network executives on the air. We'll hear a parody in this show of the name of one ad agency, BBDNO. On another occasion, Mr. Allen said the full name, Batten, Barton, Durston, and Osborne, sounded like a trunk falling down a flight of stairs. We'll hear all those aspects of Fred Allen's comedy in this show, and there's one more personal connection Jill Errold Bailey didn't know about. In the cast of this show is the Broadway comedian and actor Sam Levine, who went on to create the role of Nathan Detroit in the musical Guys and Dolls. Well, the first celebrity autograph I ever got was Sam Levine's in the Netherland Plaza Hotel in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was about five. Here to help celebrate our fifth anniversary is my hero, Fred Allen, on CBS in the April 9th, 1941 edition of the Texaco Star Theater. The Texaco Star Theater. More than 45,000 Texaco dealers from coast to coast welcome you to an hour of mirth and melody with our star comedian, Fred Allen, Kenny Baker in Portland Hoffa, the Texaco Roundtable, Wynn Murray and Al Goodman's Orchestra. It's Texaco time. This time of the year, ladies and gentlemen, the sun shines, the birds sing, the flowers bloom, the sap is running from the trees. And speaking of sap, here it is, Fred Allen in person. Straighten me up, will you, Jimmy? I can't. Thanks. I'm so weak at this late hour, I just fall over, you see. I must... Remember to get stiffer suspenders for next week. Thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Say, James, uh, what is that sap uh, innuendo you just fold here a second ago? You know, one of these evenings, you'll overdo it with one of your witty introductions. Well, gee, Fred, once in a while a fellow has to let himself go. Well, one of these nights, you let yourself go, Jimmy, and I'll let you go, too, to keep yourself company. <laughs> you know, I once had another announcer who let himself go during an introduction... And do you, by any chance, know what happened to him? No, what? He is now announcing in the owl... Don't overdo it. You've got a word there. I mean... No gestures with a word like what? Now, do you know what happened to this announcer? 
You changed? No, what? <laughs> well, that delivery's no good either. Haven't you got a just old ready-made what in there you can give me? Do you know what happened to this announcer? I haven't the slightest idea. Well, I'll tell you. He's now announcing in the Owl Drugstore on 44th Street. Now, if you should go into that... <laughs> If you'd get a union tailor on those suits, the stitches wouldn't jump. <laughs> you perspire a little, and the whole suit goes up your back there. I mean. Well, this announcer is in the Owl Drugstore, and if you should happen to go into this particular Owl Drugstore and you order ham and eggs, the gentleman who takes your order will turn to the kitchen and shout, Ham and eggs! And then from the kitchen, a voice will reply, Ham and eggs! And then from somewhere in back, another voice will echo, Ham and eggs! And then from way back in the dark, dingy confines of this owl drugstore, a lone voice will cry out, Coming up! <laughs> that is the announcer who once worked for me. <laughs> and once, only once, mind you, let himself go during my introduction. Now, what do you say? Well, if that guy is getting three square meals a day, he's better off than I am. Jimmy, don't tell me that you are undernourished. After all, with that rotunda under your vest there, <laughs> your stomach looks like either end of the Staten Island Ferry. <laughs> little seaweed on there for a sarong, and you wouldn't know. If you were, if you were, if you open that coat, something tells me we'll hear a watermelon calling its mate. Oh yeah. And with this scintillating rejoinder from Mr. Wellington. We turn to the latest news of the week. The Texaco News presents its highlight from the world of news. In New York City, New York, arrival of spring is officially confirmed as Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus opens at Madison Square Garden for its four-week engagement. Tonight, Texaco News visits the circus and brings you a preview of the greatest show on Earth's outstanding features. At the entrance of the circus, of course, we find the traditional horse-voiced announcer. Hurry, 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 the big show's about to start on the inside. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Outside, we also find the perennial little man and his wife from out of town. Say, uh, what's that sign say, Myrna? Says, uh, circus. Must be some kind of hijinks. Think we ought to go in, Myrna? You bet. If it's half as good as it smells, it's a great show. <laughs> we follow them in and stop for a word with the circus publicity man, Sam Levine. How does the circus look this year, Sam? You're asking me? I told him not to open it. Don't open it, John, I says. I ain't ready. So what does he do? I ain't ready, and he opens it. Well, who is John? John Ringling North. He owns the circus. Oh, he's the uh, man you were talking to. Mm -hmm. Don't open it, John, I says. I ain't ready. So what does he do? I ain't ready, and he opens it. What did, what did Mr. North say? Sam, he says, all right, you're my press agent. There's nothing I wouldn't do for you that I wouldn't do if it didn't have to be done. Uh -huh. but, but when you ask me not to open it, Sam, he says, I got to say to you, Sam, no, in the affirmative. Well, he must have had a reason. All right, so he had a little trouble. With a circus, you got to expect trouble. What trouble? Well, the dog-faced boy suddenly gets distemper. No kidding, distemper. The, huh? the sword swallower gets indigestion. He's hiccuping knives and forks. Knives and forks. <laughs> the fire eater overdone it. One of his tonsils is a clinker. Well, 
Well, naturally. I know John's upset with the elephant losing 400 pounds. The elephant's skin and bones. What happened to the elephant? Malnutrition. Malnutrition. <laughs> the elephant's feeder was nearsighted. For two months, he kept leaving the elephant's hay at the wrong end. <laughs> the elephant was sitting pretty. The elephant was sitting pretty, but he wasn't getting no nourishment. <laughs> Mr. North surely had plenty of trouble. But that's got nothing to do with me. Well, naturally. All right, so I'm only the, the circus press agent. But I pleaded with him. Don't open it, John, I says. I ain't ready. So what does he do? I ain't ready, and he opens it. Well, why weren't you ready? I didn't have no adjective. No adjective? Well, what's adjective? What makes a circus? Is it the animals, the clowns, the bareback riders? No. It's the circus press agent. And what makes a circus press agent? An adjective. One adjective? One adjective. Now, look. Last year, for instance, the circus was resplendent. Resplendent. The year before, mammoth. Mammoth. And this year? This year, I ain't ready. Well, why not? <laughs> why not? This year, it's all new. The circus is streamlined. How can I find an adjective that'll... Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got it. A streamlined adjective? What is it? Stream lousel. <laughs> this year, the circus is stream lousel. Let's go, John. I'm ready. And uh, Sam Levine. <laughs> As Sam Levine, the press agent, scurries off to see John, we step inside to see the big show. <laughs> We elbow our way through the milling crowds and stop to look at the wild animals. Here on the left, we see the hyenas. <laughs> Tell me, where, uh, where do you keep the hyenas during the winter, trainer? We rent them to Bob Hope to mix them with his studio audience. <laughs> Across from the hyenas is the elephant nook. One of the elephants is just about to trumpet. forgot to say was formerly with Louis Armstrong. <laughs> you see a little man standing near the elephants. We stopped to chat with him. Are you an elephant lover, brother? Nah, I was just trying something out. Oh, an experiment? Yeah, you've heard that old saying, an elephant never forgets. Yes? Well, I thought I would put an elephant to the test. And did you? Yeah, last year when the circus opened, I gave that third elephant there a piece of candy. An old Henry Bar. An old Henry Bar? And yeah. this year? I came back to see if the elephant remembered me. And did he? The elephant not only remembered me, he even remembered I'd given him the old Henry Bar. Well, how do you know? He just gave me this old cellophane wrapper to throw away from him. He did. <laughs> we turned from the... From the... You ought to throw it back at him after... We turned from the elephant's wastebasket to see the freaks. On the first platform, we find the female monstrosity, the fat lady, Stout Sadie. We stopped to pass the time of day. Hello, Stout Sadie. Will you take this thing out of my mouth? Uh, this little piece of cardboard? Yeah. Okay. That's better. Hey, what is this cardboard? It's a bookmark. I got 18 double chins. Oh. Have to keep a bookmark in my mouth. Why? Well, when I want to talk, I reach up till I feel the bookmark. I know which wrinkle to open. <laughs> I see what you mean. 
Well, how much, uh, please, now, Stout Sadie has an agent. You can't get her business that way. Thank you. But <laughs> well, how much do you weigh, uh, how much do you weigh, Stout Sadie? I can't even find out. Why not? Every time I get on one of them penny weighing machines, the same card comes out. What does the card say? It says, now put the wagon on. Uh, <laughs> leaving Stout Sadie. Leaving Stout Sadie, we stop at Gargantua's cage. A man stands gazing at the world's largest gorilla. The man seems to be talking to himself. We listen. Why? 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 Something troubling you, sir? I've just been studying Gargantua. Yes? Why, I keep asking myself, why? Well, why what? Well, here's Gargantua, a monkey, leading the life of a furry Riley. Yeah? He's got a wife, a home, all he can eat for nothing, no work, no taxes to pay, nothing to worry about. That's right. Why? Why? Well, why what? Darwin said man descended from the monkey, didn't he? Yes, he did. So that's what I can't understand. Why? Why? Well, while we are trying to figure this out, while we are trying to figure this out, an argument attracts our attention. Excited voices seem to be coming from the next booth. You will take it. That is who will take it. Rushing over, rushing over, we find the Siamese twins in heated discussion. Doom cop. Do doom cop. Do do doom cop. Just a minute, boys. What's the trouble? We are the Siamese twins, Mo and Joe. I am Mo and I am Joe. Well, what's the trouble? Joe is having a headache. Ah, uh, one minute, please. Who is doing the talking? Mo or Joe? All right. Mo is doing the talking. Now, ju- just a minute. Just a minute, boy. First, who will doing the talking? Mo or Joe? You can talk together, can't you? Good. We will zusammensprechen. Fine. Now, now, what's wrong? Joe is having a sore throat and a headache. Yes. Joe is asking Mo to take an aspirin to cure Joe's headache. Yes. Mo is refusing to take the aspirin to cure Joe. Well, look, if Joe has the headache, why doesn't Joe take the aspirin himself? Joe is already eating a Zymote hokey to cure his sore throat. Joe's mouth is full. Well, somebody ought to take it. Yamo will take it. Nine, Joe will take it. Yeah, wait, 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 yeah, wait, yeah. Now, wait a minute. Just a minute, fellas. You boys shouldn't fight. Siamese twins cannot stop having arguments. Why not? Siamese twins, to be Siamese twins. Yes? Something has got to come between them. (laughs) And so we leave the Siamese twins. We leave the Siamese twins without seeing the connection. And as night falls... And as night falls on 8th Avenue and the lazy moon rises slowly over sloppy Joe's... Tired but happy, we say aloha to the Razorbacks and funny clowns, and we board our BMT sunken gondola that glides us safely back to Jackson Heights in the good old USA. And now, ladies and gentlemen, thanks to Kenny Baker, we are able to shake off the effects of our circus jaunt. For his first number, Kenny sings Amapola. On a distant shore, a girl with a way of whispering, see, si, senor. Each night, while guitars would softly play, the tunes seem to dance 
around the words that he'd say. That lovely flower so sweet and heavenly Since I found you My heart is wrapped around you And loving you it seems to be a rhapsody Amapola, the pretty little poppy must copy it and dearing charm from you. Congratulations, Larry, my boy. Congratulations? For what? Why, on looking like your older self, Larry. Gosh, you know, you're about the only one of this whole crowd uh, I can recognize tonight. Everybody <laughs> slicked up like $6 worth of wet heels. <laughs> Look at Jimmy over there. He's had his mustache moth back. Al Goodman's got shoes on tonight. <laughs> Kenny Baker's wearing a piece of an omelet for a necktie. And if that isn't a section torn out of an old rainbow Portland's got on for a dress, I... Hey, what's gotten into everybody tonight? Why, it's spring, Fred. Spring is responsible for this sartorial metamorphosis? Sure, spring makes everyone think of putting his best foot forward. Eager, too, for any refreshing change. And may I remind you that your Texaco dealer also holds out the promise of a refreshing change. A different driving thrill for the days ahead.
that was my heart at thy sweet voice, played by Al Goodman and his Texaco valve grinders. And now, oh, hello, Portland. Hello, Mr. Allen. <laughs> well, uh, what is on your mind, if you will forgive the overstatement? Oh, I just stopped in to say goodbye. And step on a laugh accidentally. <laughs> you just stopped in to say, well, uh, goodbye, you said? I'm well, not well, going. Well, wait a minute. Wait now. Let's start from the beginning again. You've confused me here. First laugh showed up all night. You stepped on it. I'll have to get it steamed and pressed now and get it back ready for next week. What's on your mind if you will forgive the overstatement? Take it up from there. Does it cost um, more with Afra if you read it twice? I mean... No. Well, I just stopped in to say goodbye. Well, goodbye. I'm not going. You are. I am. Yes. Aren't you leaving our show? Portland, you're not psychic. You haven't been reading the sponsor's mind, have you? You're going on the Campbell Soup Program. Oh, well, that's why, yes, I'm going to be in a little play next Friday night. It's called My Client Curly. Well, it's been fun working with you, Mr. Allen. But I'm not going... Well, now, just so you'll remember... Just so you'll remember Mom and me, here is a basket of cheese sandwiches we made for you to take along. Oh. <laughs> little mementos? Well, two of them are mementos. The rest are camembert. Uh, now, just a minute. What is all this cheesy sentiment here? This bon voyage business. Bon fromage business. Can't I... Can't... Can't I... One, two, three, four, five, six... Can't I... Can't I go on a... Can't I even go on another program one Mr. night? Mr. Allen! Yes, maestro? I, Goodman, to you, Allen, wish to say one word of farewell. And the word is... Farewell. Uh, <laughs> an ad lib, eh? <laughs> but, maestro, I... Uh... In my grief, words are failing, Goodman. There's only one way a broken-hearted musician can say goodbye. Boys! the music and the singing both. We don't know which to blame now when you do them together like that. What is this, maestro? Portland, I was conducting you singing while you were conducting the orchestra. I hope you... Portland, what is this, maestro? Portland brings cheese and you come up with corn. What is this? <laughs> After all, I'm, uh, I'm not joining the Foreign Legion. Oh, you mean you're coming back? Well, of course I am. Coming back, he says... And I am paying $2 for the arrangement of old Lang Syne. Well, that's why you should have cried in there, you see. So what? So next Wednesday you are coming back. It's another $2 for Hail, Hail, the gang's all here. Now, look, once and for all, I am... Uh, now, who spread this rumor that I was going for good? Well, Kenny Baker said Kenny, that... Kenny, always Kenny. That kid looks like Skippy, but he's got the soul of Lucretia Borgia. <laughs> Where is that dimpled rat? I don't know. Oh, Jimmy. Jimmy Wallington. Yes, Fred? Where's Kenny? Oh, is it time for Kenny's entrance? I'll get going. Kenny's entrance? What is this? Quiet, please. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you that worthy successor to Fred Allen, the new comedy star of the Texaco Star Theater, Kenny a laugh a minute baker in person. Thank you, thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You know, a funny thing happened on the way to the theater tonight. Kenny, uh, Kenny, Kenny. Oh, are you still around? <laughs> Am I still around? Now, listen, you little fifth columnist. Now, don't get excited, F.A. Well, who's excited? I'm doing a guest shot Friday night. I am not leaving this program. How can I leave? 
Who get the laughs? Oh, we'll get along some way. Oh, no, no, Kenny. I am not a man who leaves his friends in the lurch. But think of yourself, F.A. This dramatic part may be the start of a new career. The legitimate theater. Grease paint. Cane and spats. I'm glad for you, old pal. This is from the heart. The heart. You have a heart you can put in a pistachio shell. <laughs> and when it's in there, it'll rattle you. <laughs> You have more ulterior motives, Kenny, than a man bringing an apple to the draft board. Oh, you've got me wrong, <laughs> Don't forget, never, never pick on an apple in the script. After all, if it wasn't for an apple originally, none of us would be around here today. So, anytime... <laughs> Anytime you see an apple in the script, tip your hat and go by quietly. Well, you've got me wrong, F.A. Oh, yeah? Said he, recreating the mood. You were trying... You were trying to get me off this program to make room... <laughs> to make room for Kenny, a laugh-a-minute baker. Honest, F.A., I just heard about the emergency and I thought I'd jump into your breach. What, you... <laughs> you leave my breaches out of this... You know very well I can't leave this show. I have a contract. I had my lawyer look at it. You can break Clause 7. <laughs> clause 7 won't help. I'll be back here next Wednesday now, and that's final. Gosh, Mr. Allen, I sure am glad you're not going. Likewise, Goodman. Going or coming, Goodman is looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, it's just as well, F.A. You'd probably be sticking your neck out going in for drama. You aren't built to handle a heavy role. Oh, I saw me the bagel once. Uh, a bagel is a delicatessen roll, Portland. Kenny is referring to the theater. Delicatessen or theater? A ham's a ham. Well, <laughs> it may interest you to know, Mr. Baker, that I am an old dramatic actor. I don't want to seem to boast, but some years ago, I was known as the Orson Wells of East Orange, New Jersey. <laughs> Why, I didn't know that you were a... Why, it might also interest you to know that when the news got around that I was doing a serious play on this Campbell show, Saroyan made me an offer. Came out of the automat right on the street and made me an offer. <laughs> and a spontaneous organization sprung up overnight. What kind of an organization? You haven't seen the evening papers? You haven't heard of the CCTDFAFTLT? <laughs> What's that? Why, it's obvious. The Citizens Committee to draft Fred Allen for the legitimate theater. What's that, he says. Why, it's bigger than the John Doe Club already. Who's behind this movement, Mr. Allen? Well, I don't know the gentleman. They say he's a theater lover of some kidney in the community. His name is Mr. Preebles. Mr. Preebles? Yes, Mr. Preebles. Probably a very important... Uh, uh, come in. Mr. Allen? Yes? I'm Mrs. Horlick. Party worker for the CCTDFAFTLT. Well, yes, Mrs. Horlick. It's peculiar. We were just small world after all. We were just talking here about the wonderful work you're doing, Mrs. Horlick. Mr. Allen, on behalf of our president, Mr. Preebles, and our 30,000 servant lovers, I implore you to give up this mockery known as radio and come back and save the legitimate theater. Madam, this is indeed an honor, but I... No buts. Mr. Preebles insists... Madam, I must have time. Mr. Preebles says, act now. But, madam, I... In the words of Mr. Preebles, the theater needs Alan. All right. All right, I say to you, Mrs. Horlick, all right. 
If the theater needs uh, me, I shall give up radio. You can tell Mr. Preebles. Congratulations, F.A. Why, Mr. Preebles, what are you doing here? Mr. Preebles, so you're Preebles, eh? Well, you wait until I introduce this next number. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Wynne Murray sings Play, Play, Tina. And now, Mr. Preebles, Baker, you and I will adjourn to the woodshed. Oh, gee, F.A. <laughs> Unusual hobby, Mr. Seymour thinks. What is your? Uh... And he should with those bifocals too. What is your? Uh... What is your hobby, Seymour? Uh, movie bonus. I go to nine pictures a day, just looking for mistakes. You mean bonus? Bonus like uh, casting a certain uh, gray-haired gentleman who mingles with the quiz kids on the coast in a picture. You mean those kind of bonus? Uh, no, little things. Take today. First, I seen a western. Yeah. The villain's having a gunfight. All he's got is one cold six-shooter. 
and he shoots seven times. Well, he probably probably had a colt in his head. You see, that would give him the extra colt meters. Well, you see... Don't blame me. I didn't write it. I'm only doing the best I can. Trying to put a little verbal adrenaline in a dead line here. (laughs) The second feature is Dorothy L'Amour as a South Seas native. Only her sarong has got a zipper on. A zipper in the South Seas. Well, of course, you don't... (laughs) I'm laughing. (laughs) Well, that's your privilege, but I... And then the third feature comes on. A guy's a castaway on a raft. All to once, he says, we're saved. There's a steamer 30 miles away. Now, how could any guy see a steamer 30 miles away below the horizon? I ask you. Well, don't ask me. Ask our maritime expert, Commodore James Wallington. Can you explain this for Seymour, Jimmy? Why, of course, Fred. A ship may be completely hidden from sight below the horizon, but the smoke from her funnel will be a dead giveaway, visible for miles. And smoke from an automobile exhaust can be a dead giveaway, too. So don't let your car become a smoker. Change to insulated Haviland at your Texaco dealer. The Texaco Star Theater continues immediately after a short pause for your station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. was a demitasse arrangement of You Should Be Set to Music from the Broadway Review, Crazy with the Heat. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Texaco Roundtable. This is the only unrehearsed discussion group in radio that concentrates on trivia. No matter too small for our consideration. If we can see it, we'll discuss it. Portland opens the meeting simply by calling the roll, if you will. Mr. George Nagel of Jamaica, Long Island. Well, good evening, Mr. Nagel. How are you, Mr. Allen? Uh, may I ask you what you do? Do you work over in, uh, in New York or in uh, Jamaica, man? Well, over Jamaica Racetrack. You're at the Jamaica Racetrack? Yes, sir. In an official capacity, sir? Well, they call me superintendent. You're superintendent, are you really? Uh, how long uh, 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 the track opens this coming Saturday, On doesn't Saturday, it? Saturday, yes, sir. And it's all been remodeled recently. All remodeled, all rebuilt from start to finish. From start to finish. Uh, how many people will the track accommodate now? Well, we seat about 16,000 and safely take care of about 50. 50, that's 66,000, huh? Well, uh, Well, of course, when there's one born every minute, you have to make room for them. <laughs> Plenty of room for them to move around. Plenty of room. Uh, you never get so crowded that the horses have to get in with the crowd. And well, not that bad. Wouldn't be. Uh, uh, did you ever? Uh, uh, did any of uh, Bing Crosby's horses ever run over Jamaica? No, no. They, they don't run any place. They don't. <laughs> run. <laughs> Uh, he probably has the only stable of pedestrian horses in the business. <laughs> There's a couple of uh, hopes, uh, a couple of jokes Bob Hope had left over, mailed them on to me to try to get rid of them. <laughs> Poor thing with his horses. I heard the jockey got off and came in third, placed in a recent race, and then a horse came in fourth. But I was going to ask you. Uh, uh, can you account for the for the, the, the great interest there is in, in horse racing, racing throughout the country? Why is it, Mr. Nagel, that uh, millions of people, it's, it's almost habit-forming, millions of people play horses every day? Why is that? 
Well, I think the thrill of getting something for nothing, picking a winner and... Well, how many do get something for nothing? Oh, very few in the long run. In the long run. The, uh, I never could figure out uh, what, what uh, uh, attempts a person to play the horses. After all, uh, a man goes down to the racetrack, he bets $2. The race starts, the horse gets the exercise... The jockey gets the ride. The guy at the mutual window gets the $2. So what does the guy get who originally played the $2 that started the whole thing? Well, he winds up with a case of nervous prostration. Nervous prostration to show. Well, thanks a lot, Mr. Nagel. And now... Miss Joy Latman of New York City. Well, good evening, Miss Latman. Good evening, Mr. Allen. May I ask your business or profession? I'm a student of physical anthropology. A student of physical anthropology? Well, I only went to kindergarten, Miss Blackman. <laughs> if you could explain either one of those words, I would very much like to know what they mean, if you could arrange it. Anthropology is the study of man, and the physical variations mean the size of a man and the color of his eyes and the color of his hair and oh, the length uh, of his bones. These, you mean these old, uh, old, uh, passe men, those the old... The passe ones and the recent ones. We work with bones <laughs> and with living people. You do, really? You have a sideline? <laughs> well, don't, uh... <laughs> Don't tell me. What is your purpose in studying anthropology? I mean, do you want to teach later on? I'd like to work in a museum, and I'd like to go out and dig up some bones and measure them. No? Nope. <laughs> you would, really? Uh, I, uh, say, tell me about I've often wondered about people who work in museums. What do they do when they die? Do they just stand them on a shelf and leave them? <laughs> well, some of them leave their bones in the will to the people at the museum. If you'd leave yours to me, I'd be very grateful. <laughs> Well, of course, my the bone in my head alone is worth a fortune, I mean. It would be a fortune to me to measure it. Yes, I, well, they tell me, what is the weight of the average brain? What is the weight of the average brain? Well, any we don't work with the insides. We oh, usually work just... with the bones. I can, it holds about... 1,500 cubic centimeters of uh, bone, but that's not weight. Oh, that's not weight. You just work, you're like an in man in an old minstrel show. You just work with the bones, I suppose. <laughs> and the world is your interlocutor. Well, thank you, uh, Miss Matt. But I don't see why a girl really doesn't have to be an anthropologist to go out and dig up a guy for a date uh, on any special. <laughs> when I'm not digging bones. Oh, I, I get it. Uh, well, you've kind of taken the wind out of me, which is fortunate for the world, Miss Latman. All right, Portman. Mr. Harry Nisselson of yes, Jackson sir. Heights, Long Island. Well, good evening, Mr. Nisselson. May I ask you, you're from Jackson Heights, Long Island, are you? Yes, sir. May I ask you, are you in business over there? Yes, sir. You're not, uh, you're in business? What sort of business, may I ask? Stationary cigars. Stationary and cigar store? Newspapers, no. ice cream. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not in the market for anything like that. I couldn't go way over to Jackson Heights for an ice cream cone at one o'clock. But I, uh, tell me, how is business, Mr. Nisselson? Oh, very fine. Business is really good, exactly. huh? Glad with to, uh, just with you personally, I mean. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I know a fellow who's in your line of business over uh, Nutley, New Jersey, has a little stationery and cigar store. And business is so bad with him, he's selling... Candy to children on the Morris plan. The little kids. <laughs> if they can get a cosigner old enough to write, uh, he'll let go of a lollipop uh, for six. You wouldn't uh, be interested in putting that system in, would you? Nothing, business. I'm not interested. You're not interested. Very I just want... time. Well, tell me, do you have a pinball machine in your no, cigar? Sir. You don't no. have a. You don't have a. Don't pin... believe in that. You don't believe in the pinball no, machine. Sir. 
You think that the pinball, uh, uh, young children shouldn't have access to no, pinball? No, not at all. Uh, you think it's harmful? Not any pinball. You think the lights flashing on hurt their eyes at that age? <laughs> well, I think you've got something there, Mr. Nesselson. And that brings us to our discussion. With Easter in Thank the you. offing and uh, new millinery styles on display, the topic of the moment, naturally, is women's hats. Now, pay close attention, Mr. Nicholson, because I want you to hear what this is going to be. Originally, huh? All right? Sure. Well, that's all I want to know, that I've got your undivided attention, because if you're going to split it up around here, you know, it gets embarrassing, a fraction of one's attention. But originally, women's uh, chapeau were designed as a protection uh, from the elements. But down through the ages, milliners have run amok, and today we find women wearing anything from cocktail coasters to coffee rings for hats. Now, uh, oh, please, Mr. Nesselson, let, let us hold in, if we will, now. Now, our question tonight is... Please, now. <laughs> Our question tonight is, do you think women should wear the grotesque creations the millinery trend encourages today, or do you think that women should demand hats that are less spectacular and more practical? Now, Mr. Nagel, please, may I ask, do you think women are overdoing it with the styles of hats they wear today? Oh, I think they've gone far enough. You think they've gone just about far enough, eh? If Mrs. Nagel uh, came uh, home some evening with a hat on that looked like a mop that had been wrung out, what would you do, Mr. Nagel? Well, I'd take the hat off and put blinkers on her. <laughs> <laughs> and try to get her in the third race the following day. Well, uh, <laughs> well, you, you have something there, Miss Latman. You haven't a hat on right now, so I can't uh, sort of judge your taste. What do you think uh, uh, about the present hat styles? Oh, I think every woman should pick the hat that'll help her get her man and keep him. You do, really? <laughs> so between millinery and digging up bones, you see, you... <laughs> I guess you're pretty busy, Miss Lapman. You well, what possesses a woman to go out and buy a hat that looks like a yesterday's fruit salad or a or a midget's corsage? You know those things that that they wear. I know. What possesses a woman? Well, to... the sales girl probably convinces her that she'll get her man with it. Oh. oh, the sales girl probably convinces her that she'll get her man. All right. I uh, I mean that's your opinion. That's what I. That's what you think. Uh, we'll have that in writing. I want to talk to you about that. Now, Mr. Nicholson, what yes, do you sir. think about the wear styles and well, women's Well, I believe it's up to date. You believe that women should be up to date? Whatever they wear is up to date. Whatever they wear is up to date. Whatever suits them personally? Whatever suits them personally? Well, whatever they like it, they wear it. Whatever. You mean that's the easiest way for the married men? I mean, yes. you keep peace that way. I believe with my wife. Whatever she wears is good. Uh, as long as, me too. as long as it suits your <laughs> yes, wife, it suits yes, you. Well, that's very good, uh, yes. Mister Nicholson. I'm happy to hear that. Of course, by the time a girl, by, <laughs> by the time a girl, well, our round table stands uh, nothing, Mister Nicholson. Nine. <laughs> it is obvious that we have wasted our time tonight. Women will go right on wearing hats that look like anything from a frustrated pen wiper to, to uh, uh, something I can't see here. Fortunately, <laughs> most women better uh, have, show better taste in selecting their husbands than their millinery. If they didn't, a lot of wives would be walking around these days with some funny-looking guys. On this hilarious note, the meeting closes, and thank you all for your kind... <laughs> To bring us to uh, Kenny Baker Preble's again, and Mr. Preble's song at this time is "The Things I Love." Magnus, 
sunset in the summer skies, the golden sparkle of the fireflies, the gleam of love light in your lovely eyes, these are the things I love. A silver moonbeam peeping through the trees, a bed of tulips nodding in the breeze. The look you give in answer to my pleas These are the things I love Oh, once I thought that life was just a winter thing My heart was cold And then you came to me And like a breath of spring You turned the silver snow to gold and serenade when day is through The babbling brook beside our rendezvous Your sweet voice whispering, darling, I love you These are the things I love They say that all who love are blind But that is not the case with me For more and more each day I find My love for you has made me see The glow of sunset in the summer skies The golden sparkle of the fireflies The gleam of love light in your lovely eyes These are the things I love and serenade when day is through a babbling brook beside our rendezvous your sweet voice whispering darling I love you these are the things these are the things I love Thank you, Mr. Preebles. Uh, pardon me, friend. Huh? Here's a telegram just came in for you. Oh, a telegram? Let's mm-hmm. see what it says, Jimmy. Oh, shoot. Bad news, friend? Oh, very bad, Jimmy. This is from a friend of mine up in Maine who runs a poultry farm. He says here, my million-dollar idea has come a cropper. What million-dollar idea? Well, I told this fellow to get his hands in the pink of condition, sing them sad songs to make them blue, then show them an ostrich egg so they'd be green with envy. But what for? Well, so they'd lay colored eggs for Easter, of oh. course. But listen to this telegram. It says, your idea is a dud. Two out of three eggs are white. The other one comes out a dingy plaid. Say, that is bad news, friend. Oh, it is. It's yes. Bad. Well, duds are always bad news. Mm-hmm. Just as gasoline duds are bad news to your engine. So next time, try a Texaco dealer and famous Fire Chief Gasoline. Now the Texaco Workshop Players. Tonight, instead of presenting their usual skit, they take you behind the scenes in radio. As you folks doze peacefully beside your radios at home, many of you no doubt envy the radio comedian. What a life, you say. Nothing to do but clip old jokes out of magazines. No worries, nothing but laughter and applause. <laughs> That's what you think. 
Little do you know what the radio comedian goes through each week, his trials, his tribulations. Well, tonight we show you the seamy side of the picture. It's called Shortcut to a Nervous Breakdown, or the radio comedian makes it the hard way. Our case history concerns the heartaches of an average radio comedian. Oh, let us call him Kenny Dank. Any resemblance between the character known as Kenny Dank and any other Kenny Dank living or on the radio is purely coincidental. Our average radio, average comedian is employed by an average advertising agency. Let's call the firm Betten, Bitten, Ditto, and Button. Any resemblance between the firm of Betten, Bitten, Ditto, and Button and any existing firm named Betten, Bitten, Ditto, and Button is their tough luck. And now our story starts. As the curtain rises... Any resemblance between this curtain and any other curtain? Uh, well, we, uh, we get the idea, Mr. Barrymore. Oh. The curtain rises on the office of Bolivar Balaam Button, president of the great advertising agency of Betten, Bitten, uh, Ditto, etc. Bolivar Balaam Button is entering his executive sanctum. Good morning, Miss Yuck. Morning, B.B. Are you ready to check on our newspaper and magazine copy? No, 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 Miss Yuck. Today, I'm checking over all of our agency uh, radio programs. Uh, these are radio surveys here. Yes, sir. They sure add up to a lot of figures. Well, these uh, radio popularity ratings are very important, Miss Yuck. These figures, these figures here show where our, whether our clients' programs are gaining or losing listeners. You see this one here? Fake it or believe it, up 1.2. One man's relatives, up 2.6. Carborundum Carnival, up. The, uh... <laughs> Wrong? Yeah! <laughs> Our comedy program, the Kenny Dank Fun Fest, has gone down again. This is the second month in succession. What's the rating? Minus 2.2. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> if Kenny Dank sponsors Moriarty's Matzas, <laughs> if they find that no one is listening to his program, we lose the account. Now, when Dank comes in to read this week's script to the office boy for his reaction, tell him I want to see him. Kenny Dank is outside well, now. send him in here. Yes, sir. Mr. Dank, please. Hello, B.B. old sock. Uh, Dank, your program is slipping. This is the second month you have gone down on the popularity survey. Quit kidding, B.B. I've been killing them. Figures don't lie, Dank. You see, here's the Crosley report. Here's the Hooper the checks on the Crosley. Here's the Duper the checks on the Hooper. And the booper. Now, according to the booper hooper duper, <laughs> you are down to minus point two point two. Oh, that's nothing. Well, minus two is less than nothing, Dank. Well, I was on opposite two fireside chats last now, month. Don't alibi, Dank. You can't blame him for everything. You're slipping. When a comedian slips, the advertising agency has to step in. But the last time the agency stepped in, I went down 19 points. Now, no heresy, Dank. Your program has got to be revised, Miss Yuck. Yes, sir? The agency has got to hype up Dank's program. Sound the conference bell. Yes, sir. Conference! Come and get it! Bumble reporting. Jumble reporting. Well, well, where's Bumble? Uh, Bumble reporting, Oh, what held you up, Bumble? I was licking an envelope, sir. I stopped the sealer. Now, you know very well when you hear the conference gong, you are supposed to drop everything and report, Bumble. Yet you stopped to seal an envelope. Yeah, but I have a dry mouth, sir. Took me two hours to work up a drool. <laughs> I didn't 
on a lotion. All right. All right. All right. Now let's get down to business. The Kenny Dank Fun Fest is slipping on all the radio surveys. Dank needs a new program, men. And what we need right now is an idea. Check, check. Uh, check. Men, we have got to change Dank's setup. Check, check. Uh, check. Men. Check, check. Uh, check. Now accelerate, Bumble. Uh, You're slowing up the conference. Oh, sorrow, take... sir. Sorrow, yes, I know, but take a faster tempo. Now, men, we have got to hatch an idea. Let's mow, men. Say, I've got an idea. How about cutting out Dank Singer and putting in a quartet? But my program has a quartet now. Yes, those four Well, that finishes me. I'm only vice president in charge of suggesting we put in a quartet. Hold everything. I just got a flash. Well, lay it on the table, A.J. How about cutting out the actors and putting in audience participation? No, no, no. We've tried audience participation. Well, then how about cutting out the audience and putting in actor participation? Well, you can't cut out studio audiences and render thousands of people homeless. Say, uh, how about not making it a quiz program? How about not making it an Aldrich family? Uh, how about just not making it? No, no, no. Now, wait a minute, men. I've got it. What is it, Chief? The new Kenny Dank Fun Fest will be what radio is crying for. This is something revolutionary. What's that, B.B.? It's a 30-minute program. Yeah? You follow me, men? Uh-huh. Yeah. With an orchestra. Yeah. With the orchestra, will have instruments. Yeah. A comedian. Yeah. And a yeah. guest star. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> but that's exactly what my program is now, B.B. Great. That proves we're on the right track, Tank. Agency cooperation gets results every time. Well, the conference is over. Break it up. Break it up, man. So long, Chief. So long, Chief. So long, Miss Yuck. Oh! What the idea? Well, don't mind S.B., Miss Yuck. He always relaxes for 20 seconds after a conference. Now, let me see. Uh, where were we? Where were we? We were fixing up my radio program. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Now, uh, what is your show this week, Dank? Well, we're doing a burlesque of a moving picture. A revolutionary idea. What picture is it? The Sea Dog. Here's the script. Oh, uh, let me see. Huh? <laughs> very funny. <laughs> very funny. <laughs> yeah, very funny, but it isn't funny enough, Dank. The agency has got to hype it up. How many writers write your program? Sixteen. Well, no wonder your program is slipping. Trying to turn out a half-hour program with only sixteen writers. But, B.B., I... Miss Yuck, buzz for our agency gag men. Yes, sir. <laughs> Our agency joke writers will make your sea dogs catch a masterpiece, Dan. Come in, come in. Company for Hutch! Company Hope! Second platoon, Company 2 of agency joke writers reporting, sir. Very well, Lieutenant Glee. Here's Dan's script. Have your men put in some gags, polish it up, kick it around, live with it, sleep on it, and have it back in two minutes. Yes, sir. Company presents pencils! See all those writers to fix up one little sketch? Our men work fast, Dank. Come in. Lieutenant Lee reporting, sir. Here's Dank's script. It's all gagged up. Well, a little late, but nice work, Lieutenant. Thank you, sir. Gad, what an organization. We're the only advertising agency in the country with its own bugle. Is my script ready now, B.B.? Just one more thing, Dank. We'll have to step next door and consult all department heads for deletion. Yes, sir. Well, department heads, department heads, attention. 
Kenny Dank here is going to read his comedy script. I want you to check on it as he goes along. Yes, sir. Now, go ahead, Dank. Well, the scene opens off the coast of Florida. Just a minute. Yes, sir? Public relations can't pass any mention of Florida. California won't like it. Florida, Florida's out, Dank. Okay. Now there's a tropical storm. Cut out the storm. Weather Bureau won't permit unauthorized storms. But I... Storm is out. Storm is out, Dank. But there's a shipwreck. The storm blows the boat. Have the boat run into a rock. All right. The boat crashes into a rock. The rock is out. The music department must. There's a rock in the Rock of Ages. The rock is out, Dank. Go ahead. But I don't see what harm now, a you rock... you don't see. You don't see. Let me see the rest of those jokes there, Dank. Yeah. I am seeing here. This poker game joke. Three vegetarians playing for small steaks. Small, small steaks offend vegetarians, Dank. It's out. But you're ruining... It's out, it's out, Dank. And these other jokes here, let me see. Out, out, out. But, this one out, but, out, out, out. Out, out, There you are, Dank. You make these cuts I've marked here and your sea dog sketch is perfect. But you've taken out all the jokes. How will it sound on the air? How will it sound? Great. Listen. The Kenny Dank program is on the air. Tonight, Kenny Dank and his fun fest present The Sea Dog. Ahoy, the mizzen man! Who's got a cigarette? Ahoy, the mizzen man! Who's got a match? Ahoy, the mizzen man! The ship's sinking, Captain. Then we're safe. No, no, don't kill yourself. Aye, aye, sir. Captain, put down that harpoon! Ahoy, the mizzen man! I quit. I can't go on the air with a thing like this. What's wrong with it? Why, even Fred Allen wouldn't use a sketch like this, and he'll use anything. Dang. By the time you agency guys in the broadcasting company get through cutting out a comedian's jokes, he isn't funny. Exactly. And as the president of Betton, Bitten, Ditto, and Button, let me tell you, Dank, we cut out your stuff purposely. Radio is a big business. Radio comedians and radio itself must have one thing in common. What's that? They're not to be laughed at. Dank, you're fired. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for letting the Star Texaco Star Theater service your radio for this hour tonight. We'll be back to render the same service next Wednesday at Texaco time. This is Fred Allen saying good night for the more than 45,000 Texaco dealers from coast to coast and inviting you to drive in anytime. Remember, you're welcome. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Great Fred Allen on the Texaco Star Theater from eight months before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. It brings us to the end of this fifth anniversary edition of the big broadcast tonight for co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog. This is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for five years of listening. Have a great week and please join us here for another five years beginning next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's true. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way, too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. It will be my delight to 